Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live.
Hello? Anybody there?
anyone up there? Hello? Just stopping by to wish you all a happy Easter.
Hello?
Hello up there. What's going on? It sounds you know, like a whole bunch of silence. You know something? If I ever find out that my stalkers, right, have any connection with this Jehovah Witnesses firefighting rednecks and my ex, I'm going to hurt these motherfuckers. They could call all the judge they want in these motherfuckers. They want you to think. Why don't you shut the fuck up? I'll say whatever the fuck I want. You understand that? Uh, None of you motherfuckers no. even control me. I honestly well, you don't, don't have to. Have I told you. Uh, that's, all, that's, all that's all it takes. That's all it takes. Sounds to it me takes. like you're a perp. Sounds to me that you fucking supposed to be targeted. sounds to me like you want to attack me because of your pain. I'm not really doesn't. It really doesn't matter what the fuck you think. I told you what I... I, I told you shit. All you have to do is listen. You have no say. You don't control me. I do have an answer for you. Stupid puta. I find out you rednecks, Jehovah Witness motherfuckers, is part of that shit. Call your God. I think it's a good idea to give you a little bit of your own trip here all the way back Hey, man, I wouldn't worry about it. That lady's a perp, man. She perps me every time I'm on here with what she says. Right. Actually, I work for the government. One of my thingums. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, since there's a perp convention online, I'd like to reply to your trip. Happy Easter, guys. Have a fucking lousy night. Fuck you.
Sorry about that. My grandson disconnected my speaker. Hang on. Hang on one second.
and can now duplicate these modified emotions. Signature clusters can then be broadcast over UHF carrier frequencies, i.e. regular TV and radio signals, and sent directly into the brain where they can then silently trigger the same basic emotion in another human being. In other words, if the emotional signature cluster for, say, base exists that can inject a hypnotist's voice into a microwave broadcast, and then the embedded hypnotist instructions are transmitted via microwave hearing directly into the brain of an unsuspecting human. Microwave hearing was first discovered by Dr. Alan Fry in 1961. The patent for silent sound, U.S. Patent 5159703, issued October 27, 1992, states that the carrier frequencies used for silent sound subliminal mind control can be transmitted in real time, or recorded and stored on mechanical, magnetic, or optical media for delayed or repeated transmission to the unsuspecting human. The patent also states that many modifications and variations of silent sound mind control are possible. The real-time transmission spoken of in the patent is the hypnotist's voice, as shown in the video, Silent Sound Mind Control Explained. And this is shown as a tool used by organized stalkers to harass and control targeted individuals. The recording of brain waves that can induce any state of consciousness in a human and the subsequent use of those brain waves in silent sound broadcasts is another method of silent sound subliminal mind control. In U.S. Patent 535-6368, method of an apparatus for inducing desired states of consciousness issued October 18, 1994. Frequency following response, or FFR, is used to take pre-recorded brain waves of specific levels of consciousness and transmit them into the brain of an unsuspecting human via microwave transmission. 
In frequency following response, FFR, a human's brain waves are made to follow superimposed frequency patterns, overriding the human's own natural brain waves. As a result, the human's thoughts are not his own, and behavior modification is achieved using this method. In other words, by studying the subtle characteristic brainwave patterns that occur when the subject experiences a particular emotion, scientists have been able to identify the concomitant brainwave pattern and can now duplicate it. These modified emotion signature clusters can then be broadcast over UHF carrier frequencies, i.e. regular TV and radio signals, and sent directly into the brain where they can then silently trigger the same basic emotion in another human being. In other words, if the emotional signature cluster for, say, a feeling of hopelessness and despair is being fed directly into your brain via unseen radio waves, you will feel those emotions. So frequency following response applied to humans via silent sound subliminal mind control is one of the ways that the entire human population of the planet can be controlled via microwave signals broadcast over TV, radio, satellite, and other broadcast means. It's real. What Dr. Persinger is saying is that virtually any mental state can be artificially injected into a human brain from an exterior source. The most frightening thing is that the means for doing this already exists in a fully operational form on a worldwide basis. Quote, the power levels for these amplitudes are similar to those associated with the signals generated globally by radio and communication system. Within the last two decades, a potential has emerged which was improbable, but which is now marginally feasible. This potential is the technical capability to influence directly the major portion of the approximately six... I'm surprised that over the past two years no one has asked me for details of the brainwashing that I was subjected to in 1982 by the witch, a.k.a. the snake lady. And no one asked me how DIA prepared me to survive known communist brainwashing techniques using MKUltra in 1981, as stated in my websites. I've been asked a lot of questions, but never either of those. No one asked for details of the brainwashing that I was subjected to in 1982 by the witch. And no one asked me how DIA prepared me to survive known communist brainwashing techniques using MKUltra in 1981. Time I disclose some details. I've been out here two and a half years. One effect of today's video is that some people at DIA and CIA will know that I'm telling the truth because I am describing a hitherto classified known communist brainwashing technique. I put this here for the people too, although I don't expect many to believe it or understand me. Previously, I reported specific details of the brainwashing to General Henry Shell. Cell towers that are popping up across America. Many of these imposter cell towers are right on top of U.S. military bases, meaning that the interceptors are almost certainly part of a U.S. government spying program being conducted in concert with the National Security Agency.
Recall that according to NSA whistleblower William Binney, the NSA is storing all electronic communications and analyzing them in real time. In 2012, Binney warned that the federal agency has a Google-style capability to search all conversations for keywords. This is what many believe to be the ultimate Edward Snowden revelation that the whistleblower has been building towards since he first emerged last year, that the NSA is not merely storing metadata, but the content of every single phone call, text message, and email being sent in the United States and potentially worldwide. The sheer amount of space needed to collect and store all this data is conducive with the fact that the NSA is building vast spy centers such as the one in Bluffdale, Utah, which has 100,000 square feet devoted to data center space alone. According to Binney, this kind of space is far more than what's needed merely to store metadata. Quote, the sheer size of that capacity indicates that the NSA is not filtering personal electronic communications such as email before storage, but is in fact storing all that they are collecting, asserts Binney. So are these strange fake cell phone towers part of the NSA's gigantic network of data interception or storage? Or do they have an as yet unknown nefarious purpose? Let me know what you think in the comments below. Watch the other videos, subscribe to the channel. I'm Paul Joseph Watson reporting for Infowars.com. Wacky Wednesday. From scary ghosts lurking in the dark to unidentified flying objects, we count the 20 most mysterious photographs ever taken. The mysterious Hinterkaifeck murders. In Germany, 1922, the murders of six people at the Hinterkaifeck farmstead shocked the nation. This wasn't because of the gruesome nature of the case, but also the case was so incredibly weird, it still remains unsolved to this day. Over 100 people were interviewed in the murder, but no one was ever arrested. No motive was ever established as to explain the murders. The Skunk Ape In the year 2000, two photographs said to be the Skunk Ape were taken by an anonymous woman and mailed to the Sarasota County, Florida, Sheriff's Department. The photographs were accompanied by a letter from the woman in which she claims to have photographed an ape in her backyard. She was convinced that the ape was an escaped orangutan. The pictures have become known to Bigfoot enthusiasts as the skunk ape photos. 9-11 attack, South Tower woman. And these photographs of the gaping hole the plane crashed into on the South Tower of the WTC on 9-11. You can see a woman standing on the edge of the hole, waving. Her name was Edna Clinton. And the mystery many people say of these photos is that she was actually a survivor. People inquire how she was able to survive everything that happened at that location, then go on to make it out of the building. Who was this superwoman, and how did she make it out? The Phoenix Lights The Phoenix Lights were a series of widely sighted unidentified flying objects seen by thousands of people, observed in the skies of Arizona, Nevada, in the U.S., and Sonora, Mexico, on Thursday, March 13, 1997. There were allegedly two distinct events which involved the incident, 
A triangular formation lights seen passing over the state and a series of stationary lights seen in the Phoenix area. The United States Air Force was identified with a second group of lights as flares dropped by A-10 Warhawk aircraft that were on the training exercise at the Barry Goldwater Ranch in southwest Arizona. But what just were the first satellites? Till this day, nobody knows. The Madonna with St. Giovannino and UFO. This painting called the Madonna with St. Giovannino, it was painted in the 15th century and hangs as part of the Loser collection. Above Mary's right shoulder is a disc-shaped object. Below is a blow-up of the section and a man and his dog can clearly be seen looking up at that object. Did these people back then see something we can't see now? It still remains unexplained. Battle of LA. A photo published by the Los Angeles Times on 26 Feb 1942 has been cited by modern-day conspiracy theorists as evidence of an extraterrestrial visitation. They assert that the photo clearly shows searchlights focused on an alien spaceship. However, the photo was heavily modified by a photo retouching prior to publication. Was this in fact the real thing? Or just another fakery? It still goes unexplained. Extra thumb. A group of four kids posing for a picture. However, there appears to be a mysterious thumb next to the kid in black on the right and does not seem to align with anyone else's body. The person that took this photo says that no one else was there on that day and that this thumb could have belonged to a kid that died months earlier that was friends with the boys in the photo. Or was it just a hitchhiker looking for a ride? The falling body. As the Coopers move into their new home in Texas, they take a photograph of the family sitting together. But as the photo is taken, a body falls from the ceiling. The person that took the photo said no one else was there at the time. But when they eventually got the photo developed, they thought it was creepy. As I suppose it would be kind of creepy to have a dead guy hanging from your roof. Would you move out of this house if it happened to you? A modern-day time traveler. A photo was taken in 1941 of a crowd watching a reopening of the South Forks Bridge in Canada. When a portion of the photo is enlarged, one man sticks out in the crowd. He appears to be wearing modern clothes that critics claim were definitely not in style in the 1940s. The man is wearing sunglasses and what looks to be a cardigan and t-shirt. There is a widely spread claim that the person was a time-traveling hipster. And some say that this is John Titter, the one and only time traveler. The Spectre of Newby Church. This photograph was taken in 1963 by Reverend K.F. Lord at Newby Church in North Yorkshire, England. It's been a controversial photo because it's just too good. The shrouded face and the way it looks directly into the camera makes it look like it was posed. Yet, supposedly, the photo has been scrutinized by photo experts who say the image is not the result of double exposure. What the fuck? The Martian Spherals. In 2004, the Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity had already detected curious blueberry-shaped microscopic formations in the Martian soil. But a much stranger picture had been taken by Opportunity at the end of 2012 depicting bigger spherules in large numbers. A possible sign that past presence of water, scientists are still uncertain of what these things might be. The Babushka Lady. 
The Babushka Lady is a nickname for an unknown woman prisoned during the 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy, who might have photographed the events. She was seen to be holding a camera and was also seen in film accounts of the assassination. Even though the shooting had already taken place and most of her surrounding witnesses took cover, she could be seen still standing with the camera. She never came forward and the police and the FBI did not find her and the film shot from her position never turned up. The Hook Island Sea Monster On December 12, 1964, Lee Sirik's wife spotted a strange object on the lagoon floor. It proved to be a gigantic tadpole-like creature, estimated at about 30 feet long. They took several photos, gradually moving closer. Eventually, Lee Sirik's and Dee Jong plucked up the courage to approach it underwater in order to film it. It proved larger than first thought, with its estimated length increasing to about 75 feet. Since that day, it has never been seen again. The Black Knight Satellite This photo is one of several observations made by the first man-made satellites in 1960, reporting unidentified objects in polar orbit, something that neither the US nor Russia were capable at the time. Since then, the Black Knight was said to disappear and reappear at regular intervals. Several pictures have been taken of this strange object, but it has yet to be identified as a known piece of man-made debris. And since the 1930s, astronomers worldwide have been reporting strange radio signals that allegedly come from the Black Knight. Time Traveller with a cell phone. In the DVD extras of Chaplin's The Circus, people were given access to short films and photos in the movie's premiere in 1928, in which appears a person seemingly talking on a cell phone. Filmmaker George Clark recently claimed that this was proof of time travellers, and the story captivated the internet. Some raised the prospect that this person was actually using an air trumpet, but this doesn't explain why the woman appears to be laughing and talking into the device. Real time traveler caught on film? Who knows? The Baltic Sea Anomaly. In 2012, a mysterious UFO-shaped 60-foot disc was discovered in the bottom of the Baltic Sea by a Swedish ocean exploring team using sonar. The apparently man-made object sits at the bottom of the ocean, looking for all intents and purposes like a drowned Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. Theories have ranged over its origin, from a UFO, Nazi anti-submarine, or a plug to the underworld. No one knows what the heck it is. The Hesdalen Lights The Hesdalen Lights is an unexplained light, usually seen in the Hesdalen Valley in Norway. In 2007, a group of teachers, students and scientists established a science camp in Norway to study the phenomenon. On a clear night, one of the students managed to take a picture using an exposure of 30 seconds. The analysis of the spectrum reveals that objects to be made of titanium, iron and scandium, whatever that is, there's no denying these lights are pretty weird. Pyramid on the Moon this photo was taken by Apollo 17 near the Geophone Rock during the last flight to the moon, and it was listed as blank in the Apollo 17 Photographic Index. 
The photo certainly suffers from extreme light exposure and noise issues, but in fact it's not completely blank as adjusting the contrast levels, pyramid-like structures appear in the photo. The Solway Firth Spaceman on 23rd May 1964, Jim Templeton, a firefighter from Cumberland, took three photographs of his five-year-old daughter while on a day trip to Berg Match. Templeton said the only other people at the marshes that day were a couple of old ladies sitting at the car at the far end of the match. In a letter to the Daily Mail in 2002, Templeton stated, I took three pictures of my daughter Elizabeth in a similar pose and was shocked when the middle picture came out from Kodak displaying what looks to be a spaceman in the background. Templeton insists he did not see the figure until after the photographs were developed and that analysts from Kodak confirmed that the photograph was actually genuine. Freaky. Number one, the ghostly airman. This is from a group portrait of Sir Victor's Goddard Squadron which had served in World War I at a training facility. At the top of the picture, an intriguing detail, a face appearing behind one of the officers, recognized by ex-members of the squadron to be air mechanic named Freddie Jackson, who was accidentally killed two days earlier by an airplane propeller, and his funeral had actually taken place on the day this photograph was taken. From a woman winning a million dollars and not telling her husband about it, to people that won big and blew it all on cars and drugs, we take a look at 15 stupid lottery winners. Number 15, Denise Rossi. When Denise Rossi won the California lotto to the tune of $1.3 million, she did not wish to share it with her then-husband, Thomas. She left her husband without a word of her winning, and despite him thinking that something was fishy, Thomas agreed for a divorce. As fate would have it, Thomas came about the truth and filed a lawsuit against ex-wife Denise. Now, since we all know that greed never pays, it's no surprise that Thomas won the case, and without even purchasing a lotto ticket, the lucky guy got every single cent of his ex-wife's winnings. Number 14, Michael Carroll. When Michael Carroll won the 2002 jackpot in England, he quickly came to be known as the Lotto Lout. He went on a crazy binge of purchasing houses and cars, as expected of most Lotto winners. But he took his overindulgence a tad bit too far when he used the backyards of those very same houses as open areas to hold demolition derbies that featured the cars he had bought. We already know that he would end up in jail and end up penniless soon enough. That's exactly what happened. Enough said. Number 13, Etta May Urquhart. California's Etta May Urquhart, after playing the lottery for over 18 years, actually won the jackpot. She was hit by a fit of nerves, as she couldn't stop shaking when she went to claim her prize. She asked her son, Ronnie, to sign the ticket and claim the jackpot on her behalf. 
Greed, however, can overpower even the closest of relations. And to Etta's disbelief, Ronnie claimed the jackpot as his own and went on a spending spree with the money he had claimed. Number 12. Timothy Elliott. Timothy Elliott had always wanted to win the lottery at any cost. And he was caught in an armed robbery once, which he only undertook in order to get money to buy lottery tickets. During his trial for the same, he was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder, and hence the court put him on probation with mandatory mental counseling instead of sending him to jail. The terms of his probation were the usual no drugs, no gambling, and no getting into any trouble. When he finally lucked out in 2011 and won his million dollars, he was arraigned for breaking the terms of his probation. Thankfully, the court asked him to make a moderate restitution and let him keep the rest of his winnings. Number 11, Ian Galtris. We have heard about all the stories out there, where lottery winners have misplaced their winning tickets only to have to go on a massive treasure hunt to retrieve them. Most of them claim to have rifled through their trash, retraced their steps, and even went so far to turn their houses upside down in search for them. Ian Galtris, an engineer from Merseyside, faced the very same emotions when he realized that he had lost his winning one million pound lottery ticket. How did he know for sure? Well, because he had purchased another ticket for his girlfriend, and it was just one digit away from his, which of course turned out to be the winning one when he had lost it. Number 10, Americo Lopes. Greed is always the precursor for a case of breach of ethics, and that's what happened with Americo Lopes. Construction company worker Americo was delighted when he won the lottery in 2010. He immediately quit his job on the pretext that he required foot surgery. While none of this appeared suspicious for a person who had just won millions, it was only months later when his co-workers filed a lawsuit against him that things became clearer. It seems that all the workers in the company usually pooled their money together in order to buy lottery tickets, and it was on one such cash pool that yielded the winning ticket. Number nine. Vivian Nicholson. Of course, everyone that wins a lottery jackpot wants to spend and spend and spend. And when Britain's Vivian Nicholson won the lottery in 1961, her very, very public exclamation that she was going to spend it all seemed very apt. But of course, no one thought that the lady would literally go ahead with her plans to such an extent that would run through her millions in just a matter of years. Rather than keeping aside some of the cash for rainy days or investing at least part of it on her future, Vivian blew it all on haute couture. Vivian was soon jobless, alienated from her friends, and a widow. Number eight, William Bud Post. William Bud Post was unfortunately the victim of the common phenomenon that lottery winners have to go through. Family members coming out of the woodwork assuming that they are entitled to a chunk of the cash for no reason other than that they're related. When Post won $16.2 million in the lottery, his girlfriend sued him for some of his winnings, actually winning her case. His brother attempted to hire a hitman to kill him so that he could get the money for himself. It was unsuccessful, but still crazy. His other siblings persuaded him to make bad investments that left him $1 million in debt and living off social security checks at the time of his death. Number seven, Jeffrey Dampier. Jeffrey Dampier had good intentions with his money. He really did. Once he won about $20 million from the Illinois lottery, he actually invested it in a gourmet popcorn store called Cassie's Gourmet Popcorn. 
His sister-in-law, along with her boyfriend, who undoubtedly had dollar signs in his eyes, shot Dampier in the back of the head with a shotgun seven years after he won, and then left him in the back of a van, intending to take his money. They were obviously caught, however, and convicted of murder, and now they're both in jail for life. Number six, Alex Asok. Alex Asok won about $500,000 in the lottery to benefit his nonprofit organization, a group that aided victims of sexual abuse. But Alex Asok was a sexual offender himself. He molested two girls under the age of 13, one in 1993 and one in 2000. And no one actually knew this until he won the jackpot and the media dug up the info. Not too long later, Asok was attacked while walking down the street and hit repeatedly in the head with a pipe that left him severely injured. Number five, Evelyn Adams. Winning the lottery once is one thing. The odds are astronomical at best. Normally, if it does happen to a person, it never happens again. For Evelyn Adams of New Jersey, however, it did happen twice, in 1985 and 1986. She won about 5.4 million in total, and instead of thinking that maybe it was a sign that she should put it away or invest it in something, Adams thought it'd be a great idea to spend it all gambling in nearby Atlantic City. A little over 20 years later, she found herself broke and living in a less than lavish trailer park. Number four, Tonda Lynn. Former Waffle House waitress, Tonda Lynn, thought she could easily get away with keeping her millions from being shared with two of her waitress colleagues when the three of them had verbally agreed to share the winnings if any of them ever won from tickets that they got as gifts from the joint patrons. Since verbal agreements related to gambling do not hold up in court, she did win the case that her colleagues filed against her. Number three, Callie Rogers. When Callie Rogers was 16, she was just another normal teen living in the UK. Then she won the lottery, about 1.9 million. If you're currently thinking that 16 is far too young to be dealing with that much money at once, you are completely right. Because shortly after receiving her cash prize, Callie went on a spending spree and threw her hardly hard-earned cash at everything from clothes to vacations to parties to breast enhancements. Oh, and cocaine. Lots and lots of cocaine, which is a pretty expensive drug. So you can kind of see why she's on this list. Number two, Janet Lee. When the 52-year-old wig shop owner from St. Louis, Janet Lee, won $18 million in 1993, she initially spent it on all the usual stuff. Later, though, she went on a philanthropic binge that went unchecked. Still, she had lost everything and had to file for bankruptcy. The South Korean immigrant took her donations to educational programs, community services, and political organizations a tad bit too far. Number one, Amanda Clayton. Amanda Clayton was arrested for welfare fraud when it came to everyone's notice. surface, collecting new data about 
this mysterious dwarf planet. The New Horizons Project is the first time that humankind has explored Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. It's all coming to this moment after nine and a half years of flight and who knows how many years of development before that. So this is, this is right down to the wire. New Horizons Mission Control is preparing for the spacecraft's flyby of the unexplored world when it suddenly goes quiet. format 
in one theory, like my own theory of everything, and it would basically tell everything we need to know about ancient mysteries in one single book. And I plan to call that The Truth About Giants. But back to this book, um, by the way, I don't mean to digress one second, but I did notice you were talking about the supposed uh, tomb of Alexander the Great, which was basically said not the tomb of Alexander the mm-hmm. Great. But I had yeah. a story about this Alexander sarcophagus on my uh, archaeology TV program a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I actually intend to, in another book I'm writing as an e-book, including The Truth of the Giants, it's going to come across, it's going to be available for the first three weeks, both of them, free. And then after okay. that, it'll cost money. But this book is going to describe that new discovery in depth in one of the chapters, so I just want to say that. But yeah, we'll have to, to get book. your uh, web link. We'll have to get your web link for that so people can access those, those e-books. So yeah, it's developing it right now, but it's first going to be sold on the UFO store. U- www.theufostore.com, and it's going to go on to my own private site, which I'm developing now. Don't have a name okay. for it yet. But back to what we're saying, uh, I noticed during my disappearance when I was ill uh, that many of these um, authors, basically in a rather cavalier nature, took up my point and start talking about it, I brought all the old stuff back into my argument. You know, aliens, the Anunnaki, you know, Graham Hancock would talk about his usual mishmash of old ideas, you know, the Antarctica, Atlantis theory that, you know, I, I, I can't remember who wrote it. You know, I don't prescribe to those wild theories. And I think Graham Hancock's gone overboard. I mean, he's a great author. I'm impressed by him. He's always been my hero early on when I talked about the Atlantis issue. But as time went on, I diverged from the ancient alien issue and the Atlantis issue somewhat. And I started concentrating first on a real race that existed all over the globe at one time, an ancient proto-Caucasoid race. And I started thinking more about the giants before the flood. And I came to a unique theory. Before the flood, and this is biblically based, I'm a, I'm a born-again Christian, by the way. I'm bi- it's a biblically based theory. It starts with what we see in the Bible about the Nephilim. And then I take, from a biblical standpoint, I start to recognize that mythology all follows the same line. Now, one of the unique Greek myths is the myth of Deucalion. And in the Deucalion myths, Interesting is it follows the same line as our story of Noah's Ark, but it said after the flood, all life was destroyed, even man. And when that happened, there were two giants that were on the earth. And when they came out, they asked the gods, how do we repopulate this earth? So then he said, it's up to the giants to do so. And not only to repopulate the earth with new beings, perfect beings, that were far removed from the old beings, and when they did this, they were to teach them the wisdom of their former civilization mm-hmm. and the, the civilization of the gods. Now, the interesting of the gods, the gods were also giants. So we're seeing even the Greek myths and the Norse myths and all these myths, 
even the gods themselves, the people we worship as gods, were not really God. They weren't the one we recognize as God, and they didn't have that status. They were like protectors, and they were protectors mm-hmm. put on earth by God, probably the sons of man, as described in the Bible. Now, right. what do we know about humanity? We know about 50,000 years ago, and this is basically when the whole story of humanity is known. That's when the Neanderthals disappeared, when we see the first artwork, when we see the first trace of civilizations like Gobekli Tepe and the myths of Atlantis and all that. All that's real. And about 50,000 years ago, there was a decrease in human population. But we know all of humanity went extinct except a very few population. And so what actually happened here is that those few then carried on the human race. Or or we all went extinct and somehow another race was created. I think God did this. This is what we call the Adamu, the bloodline of Adam. Those are the pure racial homo sapiens. Now before that they had another group according to the Hebrew Bible, and they were called the Ish. The Ish basically is a general term describing all human-like forms that were not part of the Adamo, the pure bloodline, which were Hebrew, and I believe a pure European origin, pure Caucasian origin. Right. Now, Patrick, uh, your 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 interest in, in the giants, was that derived from your study on uh ancient human populations? Because was it uh, yes, did you start genetic. Because I yeah. recognize so that was that was the evidence. The Lost Race of the Giants is the title of your book, so so you must have stumbled on so many groups of giants that you decided that this, is that what the decision was made? That you had to write the book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm starting to think that in that disappearance, we recognize mm-hmm. that the first group of people before that disappearance, there was a 13% diversity. And to understand the difference between that, we understand that there was a 1% diversity, okay, in today's population, all the differences we see of human population, of all the races, all the differences we see today are a mere 1%. So imagine if there were 13%. Now, these races of today are called subspecies. They're species, but they're not entirely a whole species. They're subdivisions of a single species. So back then we had... Diversity in our population is 13%. Now, out of that 13%, we must have seen many different types of humans, many different types of human-like creatures, not to mention all the other races like the Neanderthals and the the Gnossians and all that, the race that we found in Siberia, which was part of my book titled Forgotten Worlds. This is from Atlantis to the ex-woman of Siberia and the Cabas of Forest. Those two were other races. One was a, a, a subhuman uh, hobbit-like race, and the other was another race that found a finger bone in uh, mm-hmm. Siberia and a cave called Denosia, where it gets the name from, and the woman. And they were actually able at the Stuttgart University, at the Hans Planck Institute, to 
Statuary Decree and the Homo sapien genome, we see a vast variety of human-like creatures, and I think that the giants that we see in our mythology were there in real form, and they were the most advanced of the races. That's where our niche comes from. That's where the reference of the Nephilim comes from. And this is where okay. the alien theory comes in. You know, Eric Von Anken wanted to see aliens from outer space with all this power. I see a entirely different scenario. I see advanced races who are part of this culture, this humanity, this earth, with advanced powers before civilization began. Okay. And at this time, like we talk about Michael Cranio with human life going back millions, if not billions of years, to the form of the creation. But unlike Michael Cranio, who thinks we devolved from this mysterious light-like creature, I think we were created on Earth as solid human beings, but in the distant past. You know, it's the Bible. Well, let me ask you about the giants, though, um, uh, Patrick. So were the giants a true Earth-born race? The giants that you found? Was that a... Yes. Was Plato described this. Plato described the Atlanteans as an Earth-born race. And in Greek mythology, the name Gigantes, which where we get our name Giant from, means earth Born. It doesn't say extraterrestrial. It doesn't say Anunnaki. It says specifically Earth born. That's why I started really okay. concentrating on the Bible and in the Greek mythology that describes as Earth born. And of course, the Germanic mythology. Those are my first two concerns. And after I started mm-hmm. reading that mythology and that religion, then I started taking in other realms, other types of mythology that coincide with this belief. And then I started drawing other things, ancient history, politics, religion, economics. I started creating the Zest Theory, which connected not only ancient mysteries, but our current world situation, all based on the giant theory, how we were created, what the giants left us in time, and what the giants and God, specifically God, the God of the Bible, the God of every religion, wanted us to do for him. And what did okay. he want to do for us rather than some alien race? Which I think is sick. So let's talk about let's talk about you just left on something, uh, you touched on something that I think is interesting. In in the book, chapter two, the title is An Early Role of Giants and a Catalyst for Their Genesis. Now can you give us some examples? I mean, in the book, in that chapter, you talk about an Armenian Stonehenge, uh, dolmens in Western Europe, even Karnak. But in one in one specific area, you talk about Baalbek, Lebanon, which is a great fascination of mine because not only is there uh, uh, megaliths, man-made megaliths of a thousand tons or more that were lifted into place to put that uh-huh. together, but the, the entire foundation and inner chambers of that building appears to be uh, the work of massive human beings or an unknown technology. Can, can you tell us about what you found uh, uh, at Belbeck and why you find that could be a, the remains of a giant race? Well, we got to look at Belbeck as a creation. We see in Belbeck this great a uh, series of constructions would date back from the Roman times, also the Byzantine times, all the way back 
to a time which this basically becomes indistinguishable. You see the Greek and the Roman, all those different great civilizations building on that single foundation. And that foundation is what you're discussing. There is no known creator there. It's just this massive, you know, megalithic construction of interesting chambers and walls and that. And I start thinking, you know, it's so indistinguishable. Now I start thinking, is this a, you know, is this a giant construction or is it a technology that was later passed on to the Adamu when they took over the earth after the giants finally passed? You know, and how long were the giants with us? Well, we know from the Bible already, some 2,000 years ago, you had Goliath, and when they, uh, in the Bible, and Joshua talks about the scouts going out from Israel to start looking at these great uh, structures in uh, Canaan. And they came back from Jericho and says, you know, we were like grasshoppers compared to these great beings. There's giants out there. That's the mm-hmm. Israelites. But we know that there were giants living on to recent times. And, you know, we know from talking about when the New World came to the ancient, you know, ancient America, it, uh, not the New World, but the Old World coming to the New World, ancient America, we see an enormous plethora of reports of seeing yellow-haired giants, red-haired giants walking in Mexico and South America, and we see it in North America. So we know that they live beyond up to recent history. But back to Beldak, so that was my main question. But mm-hmm. if it is that subterranean, and if there were giants those recently, then I think, yes, they were created by giants. They were part of that giant mystique. And I think many of the megaliths he formed were by giants. If you remember, when you see Merlin, and you see the old legend of Stonehenge is said it was created by giants in Ireland. And later Merlin whisked Stonehenge away and placed it in Salisbury, mm-hmm. England. So we're seeing right there in our recent megalith references to giants. Now, people say, well, that's just myth. It's just folklore. But you see, how do we know... You see, we write things down immediately as we see them today in our news reports. Now, we have to understand that we were the same Adamu that we were then. If we were writing about <laughs> giants and gums and great things happening, we weren't like Eric Von Dankens and these, these, you know, these, these uh, bastardly-type creatures that are so primitive they need aliens to explain how to screw in a stone upon a stone to make, to make a, a piece of technology. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't know how to use stone tools until the Anunnaki told us. You know, it wasn't like that. We see humans realizing that they're gods, these giants, and then the almost like a henotheistic religion like the Hindus. But God mm-hmm. was the former god, and he was up there, and these, these sons of man were busy creating all the stuff. And and then we reported this, reported that even like when we talk about the Bible, the Bible wasn't written by primitive people making stuff up. They were witnessing these events, 
in their own terms and their own ways might make us think they're psychological. We think, oh, that's kind of literal. How they do that? But he, they're reading, writing it in their own terms and their own language, the simplest way they could describe real events. And well, let's talk about so, let's yes, talk about some I classical giants created uh, by the giants. and I think yeah. Let's talk about some classical sources because you have a, 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 a chapter in here. Uh, the Greeks just litter their uh, uh, accounts and mythology of uh, the Cyclopses and the Centaurs and the and the other uh, gigantic human beings. Uh, uh, pick, pick, pick the most well-known giant and let, it, let, let our audience hear what your research has, has found uh, on the mythology of, of ancient Greek giants. I'm just really curious. You Actually, you have a section here called Homer's Giants, which I found was yeah. fascinating. Okay. What you talk about that. Talk about that. Um, the interesting thing about Homer's Giants was uh, that they were finding the actual the giants described by Homer. They were actually finding their bones. You see, Josephus, in the first century A.D., after Tiberius destroyed the temple, Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. He started talking very eagerly that the Romans and the Greeks were starting to do a different type of science. They were finding bones, and they were examining them, and they were documenting them. So even back then, there was archaeology and paleontology. Now, you remember in Richard Dewhurst's work, he talks a lot about 18th century finds. That's what the whole book is about. Now, what I talk about is not 18th century archaeology, but actually first century and second century, even even before that, in B.C. times, of Greeks and Romans doing what we would call paleontological and archaeological research. And I'd like to, to read a little bit from the book to tell you a little bit about some of the quotes I used, which will bring to light some of that discussion. See, it's the one section I talk about that's called Backing Up the Myths with Science, Excavating Giant Bones in Antiquity. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, I started to work on Adrian Mayer's work and started looking at it and studying it in depth. Now, she had different conclusions than me, but I found her works a wealth of information. And that's what I used in that chapter or that section about Homer's giants. And I'd like to read you from that first and then go back to the other giants they were finding, including Achilles, Ajax, Mm -hmm. and all that. So anyhow, let me get that section right here. It's right here. Uh, okay. Wrong section over. Okay, here we go. Okay, here we go. All right. In that time, we know that, um, first of all, in 400 B.C., or B.C., rather, or B.C.E., as I described in the book before Common Era, Homer wrote, on the earth, then, were giants. Okay, so the Iliad and the Odyssey for them were divinely inspired. They were in collectively the whole ancient Greek Bible. And they found in one area the bones of Achilles. And then later on, they start talking about finding 
the uh, bones that Adrian Meir was talking about. And in that, she writes, here it is. The farmer's and grandfather, Mayor explains, and this is something they found in Lydia. They found on the banks of Oronites, a the boat, the Orestes, okay, that was a giant, his seven cubit skeleton, which was seized by the Spartans in Tegea. Now, I want to read you this. Had had told the, the the farmer's own grandfather had told him how the Roman Emperor Hadrian came to pay homage to Ajax's relics after the skeleton was memorably with memorably big kneecaps were washed away out by the sea just across the strait. Hadrian embraced and kissed the bones and laid them out. Apparently in the configuration of a man almost 15 feet tall. Then the emperor built a fine tomb for Ajax's bones at Troy. Have you personally seen any hero's bones? Asked the merchant. The farmer explained, less than 50 years ago, I myself sailed across the Strait of Sigium to view a vast skeleton that eroded one of the rocky caves in the Cape. Sigium near Rhodium was the Greek hero Achilles' traditional burial place. The upper body of the skeleton was concealed in a cave, but the rest of the bones extend some 10 meters onto the Cape. This is May 2000, page 117. So you so see that's an that they were already the giants found. Wow, and what year was that that they found that? I believe it was back in 500 B.C. Wow. Significantly old. Significantly old. Um, and to think they were all you know, doing this before archaeology was even created. Right. Amazing. Uh, your book's filled with great references to various cultures, uh, the Greeks, uh, even the Native Americans. Uh, but in Clash of the Gods, you actually uh, uh, report and, and talk about uh, the mythology of the Vikings. And, and actually, I have, a, <laughs> I have an excerpt here that I want to read, uh, that, and then I want you to comment on this, uh, uh, because it's based on Norse legend. And it goes this. This is what this is how it's, what it says. It says, "From a realm of cold and darkness came the frost giants, threatening to plunge the mortal world into a new ice age. But humanity would not face this threat alone. Our armies drove the frost giants back into the heart of their own world. The great cost was great. In the end, their king fell, and the source of their power was taken from them. With the last great war ended." We withdrew from the other worlds and returned home to the realm of eternal Asgard. And here we remain as the beacon of hope, shining out across the stars. And through, we, f we have fallen into man's myth and legend. It was Asgard, it was Asgard at, and its warriors that brought peace to the universe. And that was from the movie Thor, uh, and that's Odin. Yes, I read that right away. Well, my favorite. Yeah, but but 
but tell us about the the legends of the giants uh, according to the Norse uh, and and the, uh, and the Vikings. That's a fascinating uh, chapter that you that you put together. Well, the the giants of the Norse were very different from the Gigantes and the gods and the Python and the different Greek gods and, and, and giants. They were very monstrous. They were created from ice and fire and reflected the Norse point of view. In fact, they embodied the Germanic dark side. And that's basically what they represented, the Germanic dark side. This dark side consisted all the way through modern history with Hitler and Himmler and the Great Holocaust. They have a dark side to them, basically bred from their very existence. Especially the Icelanders in the North themselves, who really never part, took part in this Holocaust. But the Northern Germanic race, they had an existence where they saw fire in the distance, and dark skies, and dark times, and clouds. And the, the sea was always part where they saw the frost and the salt at their nose. And so they started creating this dark mythology. And the giants of that time were were hideous, they were inhuman, they had no feeling, they had no remorse. They just kept coming and coming without any reflection at the danger the gods gave them, like Thor and Odin. They just wanted to kill at mercy anything that lived. I mean, they were, they were badass dudes. They were a lot worse than anything you could conceive in any of the other mythologies. And they were various. You had the frost giants, you had these giants like, like the Anglo-Saxons. They were Germans, too. They, in their original myth, it became, in later times, Jack and the Beanstalk. You had mm -hmm. uh, these myths of you know, uh, Christmas giants, believe it or not. The Yuletide giants were part of their myths. And they were creating great areas. They were, they were building mountains and building the earth. You know, in the beginning, when Ymir first was born, he was the first frost giant, the gods ambushed him and ripped off his head and basically dissected him and all the flowing blood that came out of his body got in a great deluge and just went over the primordial world which there was no real earth, which they called middle earth, believe it or not, like in Tolkien and Tolkien took it from that. You had, you had creatures that were, uh, in some of these giants were like the orcs he took a lot of that from that, but you had a deluge that destroyed everything, and the salty blood eventually became the oceans, lakes, and rivers. And then you had um, you had uh, his skull cap became the universe, the big the big you know ceiling of the universe above. His brains became the dark clouds. His skin and flesh became the animals. His hair became all the grasses and trees, but the maggots within his stomach became the hideous dwarves and creatures that haunted man and beckoned his every move. So you can see the giants went into their, the birth of their, the, the whole world of Middle-earth and went into the creation of every being. So that's different about everything we know. Like even in the Greek mythology of the flood, the Deucalion, you know, its myth talks about a time when, you know, there's a flood and, you know, giants kind of took the bones of all, someone who's already dead, you know, 
you know, kind of, you know, nicely arranged bones and magically created creatures. This is no nice, you know, confabulation of creatures. This was a heinous, bloodthirsty creation. With, you know, every type of cold-blooded murder by the gods upon Ymir. And the gods themselves were giants, regardless, but they were more beautiful and more Aryan and more Germanic in nature. So they created, you know, the Vikings and the Germans created these beings out of their own selves, but created the giants as the antithesis of what they wanted to be. So that's uh-huh. what the giants so are you, is, is it your feeling that uh, the, uh, that mythology is based on, on truth and just maybe uh, uh, glorified in some way, uh, especially well, in the Norse accounts? Is, I think they were creating. I think they were creating real myths and real reports about what was happening. But even like you see in this ancient alien series, like when they see the supposed UFOs doing things, they write in a way they can explain best from their own experience. Like we would explain something we see from our own experience and our own point of view in our history. They were doing the same. To them, we, they knew about knives and battle and killing, like the Germans and the Celts were masters at that. So when they saw it, they were, they were placing these creations, these vast floods that were happening at the time, the great the great age of cataclysms, as I call it, with the earthquakes and that happening, they, were, they, they explained it in a rather symbolic sense as this God being torn to shreds, you know, with the blood and the guts, mm-hmm. and that's how they would come up with it. But they were really saying in their own way something that was really happening. Interesting. Um, you have a, a section, uh, and we've talked about this with other authors, on uh, ancient North America and the giants that roamed uh, that area. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what you discovered in the North American giants? And um, is it your belief that they migrated from another area? Or uh, what, what, is, what did you find in terms of uh, the presence of, of, of giants in, uh, in America or North America? Well, I think, in my current opinion, giants will probably place around the area that the that the real humans were eventually found. You know, in the Middle East, up towards the Taklamakan Desert, where I think the Adama were really created. I don't think they were made in the Middle East, like the ancient alien theory says, with, with the uh, with the Anunnaki created. I think they were created by God in what world was the real Garden of Eden. You see in many early 20th century uh, theorists there was a discussion of the gardening actually being in Asia and then migrating westward into India first and then finally into the Middle East. So I think the Taklamakan Desert would be the ideal place. That's where we find the ancient you know, Caucasian mummies of China, which by any means at that time were already giant compared to the rest of the humans. So maybe this is one of the race of giants we see. No, you got to notice that lost races of giants. I think that there were many giants at the time and many different types. But I think probably, you know, there were land bridges, there was a great mass. I think there were more masses in the... Uh, 
the Pacific. I think this idea of Lemuria is linked to that. I think, you know, when we look even at at uh, Australia, as Graham Hancock so wisely put it, there was probably a vast continent down there, too. Robert Schock talked about Indonesia being possible Atlantis in one of his books. There was a great land bridge was connecting all those eastern, southeastern masses, including New Zealand, New Guinea. And we see, you know, a lot of red-haired giants and mummies there. We see them in South you know, South America, and there were a lot of going back and forth between the different continents and the land bridges that are existing. You see Madame Molaski, when she conceived her world, and you look at her map, there was a great, greater land mass. There was less ocean and more land. And I think if this really existed, as she said, then there's possible, it makes it harder to figure out where these giants really originate, because if there's land masses, they're no longer there. Maybe the birthplace, as many of these original Lemurian disco- uh, discoverers talked about in their writings, it could be possible that they are far beneath the ocean now. But so I like to these think are, that yeah. originated these are natural, there, probably yeah. Go ahead. Originated in one of the older places and moved out. Okay, so these are these are uh, these are human beings that are. Uh, of a genus uh, that we don't uh, don't really know about because we we don't have any giants that live on the earth anymore. But these, these right. are naturally occurring giants, giant races of beings that were all over the, the the continental USA. Isn't that correct? Correct. And before before we were here, so there. Longevity on Earth was an extensive. They were already advanced, and they already had a great technology. But I even believe that me, their technology was very different. I said this on Guy TV, that our perception of technology, like look at Earth today. There's not a consistency from time and place. There is an overlap, like a um, like there, things aren't linear in our development. And there is a non-linear look. You know, we see in the Arab region, we see a tendency where they have certain technologies today, but their culture is more primitive, and their technology basically came from the Soviet Union, like their AK-47 assault rifles, like we see ISIS using, and their tanks are Soviet-made, and then they got also some weapons they got from when we were giving weapons to Iraq. They have technology from that, but they're not making their own like they did in ancient times. But they still have knowledge that the ancient people didn't, but the ancient people at that same time had knowledge that we don't today. So there's an inconsistency mm-hmm. that we see, like, in certain areas of Africa. They're very primitive. But in today, you know, we are at the top of the, uh, of the basically level of technology. But we see that in ancient mm-hmm. times... All of Africa that were highly advanced, and Europe were huddling in the caves. So there's never a consistency from one point to the next. And I think that um, the giants 
might have had what we call high technology, but they could have been using psychic abilities. If their brains were larger, they could have had a greater grasp on psychic energies and psychic technology. They could have used mm-hmm. stone, but knew how to use them in different ways. We see from archaeologists looking at Gobekli Tepe and all these great Asia Minor uh, discoveries, like the Hittites, the ancient people there in the Middle East, mm-hmm. where the ancient Aryans were supposed to come from one theory at one time. We see uh, the, the fact that they had these great abilities to, to, to polish and shine with instruments that might have been more advanced. They were stones, but they were only two meters in diameter, and they could shine it and cut at a greater level of sophistication that we can't do with our lasers Today, like Christopher Dunn wants to put in lasers in ancient time. We don't need lasers in ancient time to cut these things. They were using stone tools and justification that we can't duplicate them today because we don't have the knowledge they had. It wasn't passed on. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to try. We're out of place. We can't conceive okay. what they thought because we don't have the invention knowledge that they did back then. So we don't understand them. We lasers, that technology wasn't known to them. They were using different types of different. Lasers is our technology. The Adamo in modern mm-hmm. times, we don't see it occurring in ancient times, but we see technology that we can't conceive of or even remake today. So the mm-hmm. giants were using great technologies that they could imagine. Is it your belief, uh, and you spend quite a bit of your book on this, that um, uh, the Sasquatch, the Bigfoot, and these other uh, what appears to be uh, uh, possible uh, uh, extractions from giant humans uh, are are not only a myth, not a myth, but they actually live today and and are derivative of a giant race of, of beings. T- tell us a little bit about the Sasquatch, because you spend you're all over. You actually spend part of your book talking about. Uh, the Chinese uh, giant Sasquatch, and then uh, the, in Americas. Yeah. The Gigantopithecus was its name. It was an yeah. Asian race that lived some 12,000 years ago, descended from African tribes of pre-humans, of the Ish, rather, as I called them, who moved over at one time and then began settling in Asia. And as that happened, uh, they started to evolve and get bigger and stronger. And these races then had the opportunity to then migrate into the new world when there was a land bridge from Austin, Asia. So anyhow, we see this in massive times. And there was an incident uh, when these great creatures were able to evolve into Sasquatch and the Yeti and all these tremendous creations. And there's no explanation other than scientific explanation that they were the direct evolution of Gigantes. Now, let me point to this point. I don't believe in evolution of the Adamu. I think the Bible clearly states that they were created by God to go from the Garden of Eden and onward. But you notice in the Bible it just says that certain things were created in the air, in the sea, on the land, and doesn't say they didn't evolve. They just said that the creatures of the land, that the, the the air, and the land, uh, the land, the air, and the ocean were created. It doesn't say anything about them really, only that they're ready at one time to be named by Adam. So we can imagine that since it doesn't mention that, and since there's mention of another world at one time, that they were actually 
evolving at that time into immense creatures in over immense period of time. And this would apply to the Ish. So I think there's evidence of evolution from the Gigantopithecus and all these other races in Africa into the Sasquatch and into other areas that were Sasquatch-related. So that would be excellent. Wow. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, tell, uh, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by antediluvial or pre-flood uh, races because uh, it's my feeling that... Um, uh, there are a lot of very sophisticated uh, uh, cultures and civilizations that basically were, were wiped off the face of the earth um, during that uh, calamity. But you have a, uh, a section on uh, uh, antediluvial or pre-flood giants that are described in the book of Enoch. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you discovered uh, about these giants and what their role was in that part of history that's really not discussed. Well, in Enoch, basically the whole point of the story is they talk about in depth of the giants that existed. The sons of man came down to the daughters of men and they started to create the Nephil, the giants. And the more it talks about that, the more it relates to man. And this is where Eric Von Daniken got off on. He started to imagine they were aliens. Now, what I would tend to think is that these aliens were not aliens. They were the giants, but they could have been more advanced forms of men. So they were very human-like. We know in the, Gen uh, the Genesis Apocrypha, which discussed part of Genesis where the giants lived and about Noah. They even suggested that Noah possibly had somewhat of a giant lineage, so that's why he was described as righteous by the realm, which in a sense would describe us as part of that experience. We have giant blood in us, giant DNA. Now we know on the Ancient Aliens show they talked about DNA that wasn't quite human. Why does it have to be alien DNA? What if that was the giant DNA that's clearly talked about in the Genesis Apocrypha? Noah was one of the sole survivors of the, of the flood. He passed on that bloodline to followers that survived the flood. Again, we go back to the Adamu in the human genome. Maybe the beginnings of the Adamu were really there. Now, this is where we shift around the Bible we could see things that weren't quite consistent. He's bringing other mythologies in. The Bible mm -hmm. was the best testament to the Hebrews, and it was the Hebrews' history that that part of the Bible was discussing. It wasn't that it was discredited or wasn't the Word of God. It just, it just depicted the Hebrew side of it. So when we bring the other mythologies in, we, break, we actually gain a knowledge of the rest of the picture. So we're seeing... Definite, we even only see the uh, Deucalion and the giants coming out of the ark. We see that lineage described in Noah. We also see in the book of the giants further description of the giants. And that was found actually as a section of the book of Enoch that wasn't complete. The book of giants comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was written in those documents. There's actually a, a book of the giants? Yes, the it was the extension of the Book of Enoch that wasn't found when 
they found mm. the Book of Enoch years later, in the 18th, uh, 19th century. So when they found the Book of Giants, it completed the story. It was in-depth even more so. And we see that in the Dead Scrolls. It was totally complete. But what it gives our opinions of the Enoch, it just creates a deeper image. And to understand that, I would suggest you go to my book. So I can't reveal everything in my book, but there's no reason to read my book. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I want the money, you know? (laughs) Our our audience is uh, uh, going to want the book. I have only touched on uh, uh, quite uh, an in-depth book, uh, and... uh, and I always I suggest that uh, our, you wouldn't be on a show if, if I didn't uh, want our readers to read the book. So I definitely will suggest that they do find and read the book, and I will post how to access the book. Um, in the few minutes we have left, uh, Patrick, I want uh, to talk about something we talked about offline um, uh, a few days ago, and that is your interest in... Uh, uh, the long heads that have been found not only in Central America but in South America, and, and these are turning out to be a race of beings that, uh, so far, uh, I do know personally of a number of grave sites that have been found in Central America. Uh, and By Brian uh, Forrester. Brian Forrester has found them in South America, but in, nor- in northern. Uh, uh, Mexico and in the Yucatan Peninsula, there was a, there's actually evidence of a race of Maya or a strain of Maya that were born with long heads. Nothing like the par- uh, Paracas people that Brian Forrester had, but uh, the Maya, this, this group of Maya, uh, I want to say strain of Maya, had very long heads, and they're immortalized in a lot of their sculptures and. Um, Reliefs, uh, as uh, uh, many times they're priests and uh, and men of knowledge, women of knowledge. But I want you, if you would, tell us a little bit about your feeling on the connection of these long heads. And uh, and, and by the way, uh, we've had uh, one anthropologist and one uh, uh, artist who is very familiar with anatomy. Uh, believes that based on the skeletal remains, they these were significantly big people. They were uh, much larger than normal humans, uh, uh, quite a few inches above six feet. Some of them look like they're close to seven feet. So anyhow, that's that's my take. What's your take on that? Well, I think that these giants, um, who I describe throughout my book, have a link to these long heads. And when my Brian Forrest and I were discussing this, he says, well, I have evidence. I'm trying to find out evidence whether or not the elongated skulls were, in fact, naturally born. And I think he was doing genetic research at the time, and he's trying to come to terms with that. When I heard that, I started talking back to him. I said, you know what? I think these were part of my giant's race. And I think they can be proven uh, through further skeletal discoveries. Now, this mind discovery is basically confirming, but I already suspected that this elongated skull technology, obviously not technology, but tendency, was in fact this giant race. So now we're getting a picture about one of these giant races and how they look. Now that they're in Native America, and we're thinking, you know, we don't know who built uh, Teotihuacan. That's a mystery. Only 
the Mayans, the Aztecs, all said the gods created them, and they brought us the technology to build our monuments. So here we're seeing my story being discussed in ancient Aztec and Mayan mythology, actually mm-hmm. saying it straight out. And they referred to them as giants in the Aztec chronology. So right. it has it me down, we're seeing my whole theory coming to the the fruition and in the last few years since I created the wrote the book. Exactly. Well hey, in the last few minutes, uh, why don't you tell our audience uh uh, why the, uh, you feel that the book is a, uh, is a, an important read, and uh, uh, let us know, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what are some of the important aspects of the book? I mean, I, we've been talking about so much of this great book that you've written, but I'm, uh, I'd like you to tell our audience just kind of a, in a, in a encapsulation of what you find is important about this book to read. What's important about this book? is it takes the former ancient alien theory of having to explain everything in the world, everything that's happened in history, politics, economics, everything we know about ourselves, and trying to attribute it to some off-world source. And we're bringing it back to tradition. We're bringing it back to Earth-born gods, Earth-born giants, an Earth-born race with a Earth-based god, you know, who deals with us specifically. It brings us back to our Karen racial heritage. Our Karen race is, in fact, the human race. It means earther, and that's where we get the name Karen from, from the word terra firma, the, the ancient Roman goddess, or terra, which is the equivalent of Gaia. It brings everything back, and it takes away this nonsense that's been going since my disappearance that took my book and tried to make themselves the experts and explain their own way and bring their own orthodoxy, if you will. They've actually created an orthodoxy of these traditional, now it's almost concrete orthodoxy about megalithic explanations and their orthodoxy about the ancient aliens. And now that's all they talk about. Now I'm breaking through this stringent, constant rehash of old issues like the mainstream scholars used to do, and I'm bringing new light into explaining these situations, and in my other books about other subjects, about history, economics, politics, religion, and of course my favorite subject, Christianity and Bible, I'm bringing all this to a new perspective. I'm bringing the Bible into new perspective, I'm bringing, bringing the giants into a renewed perspective that I want to explain to the world, the entire human race, that these things existed, that they're important, and that we need to grasp a new perspective, our whole understanding about our past. It's not what the mainstream, it's not what this new orthodoxy created by Graham Hancock and Robert Schock and John Anthony West, who I do admire and who are personally my friends, but I have to call out some of their tendencies to go back to their old arguments, and I demand from them to come up with new ideas and new precedent for a new age that's coming. Mm, fantastic. My guest has been Patrick Christopher Chenard. The book is Lost Race of the Giants, The Mystery of Their Culture, Influence, and Decline Throughout the World. Thank you, uh for being on the program, and we look forward to hearing much more about uh, your upcoming books and, and material, Patrick. Thank you very much, and please be on my show on WTAN, which is available. Uh, it will be coming out this 
this uh, this coming after Christmas, and I call everyone to look on Talk Radio 1480.com and start looking at the upcoming shows, and when you see my show, The Christian Archaeologist or The Radical Archaeologist, I think I'm going to name it now, I think you should look it up and listen to us because you're going to be on the show too, and you'll hear All right. my views of the world and my comp- uh, comprehension of the news. We have special guest, Dr. Michael E. Sala, a pioneer in the development of exopolitics, the political study of key actors, institutions, and processes associated with extraterrestrial life. His interest in exopolitics evolved out of his investigation of the source of international conflict and its relationship to an extraterrestrial presence that is not acknowledged to the general public, elected officials, or even senior military officials. Internationally renowned scholar in politics, conflict resolution, author, researcher, lecturer, and key figure for the disclosure movement, Dr. Sala has published several groundbreaking books and articles 
discussing exopolitics. Implications of the extraterrestrial presence. Exposing U.S. government policies on extraterrestrial life. Galactic diplomacy, getting to yes with E.T. Kennedy's last stand, Eisenhower, UFOs, MJ-12, and JFK's assassination. And his most recent work, Insiders Reveal, Secret Space Programs, and Extraterrestrial Alliances. In that book, he analyzes whistleblower testimonies revealing the extent of classified space programs and extraterrestrial diplomacy. Check out Dr. Solid's work at www.exopolitics.org. Michael, thank you so much for joining us tonight here at The Leak Project. How's it going? Thanks, Rex. I'm glad to be here. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you. I've been following your work now for some time. You've been a real key figure in the disclosure movement now for years, and you certainly have led a very fascinating life. Now, I gave a, you know, a pretty good introduction about the work that you do and the books that you've authored. But for those that haven't had an opportunity to learn about you before and follow your work, just give us a, a quick idea on who you are and essentially how you became such an expert in these topics. Uh, sure, Rex. Um, I uh, was a professor of international politics with a specialty in international conflict. And in 2001, when I held a full-time appointment at American University in Washington, D.C., I watched the Disclosure Project press conference that had been organized by uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, where there were 21 whistleblowers revealing what they knew about a cover-up of extraterrestrial life. And I can honestly say that uh, it really changed my life. Uh, up until that time, I was a pretty conventional uh, scholar of international politics. And once I watched that video and listened to those whistleblowers, I realized that uh, this was a very real phenomenon and that uh, there were very credible people who were having experiences about this cover-up and it it, of course, affected the way in which international politics was being conducted. And so for me, I just saw uh, this as a natural evolution from studying politics at an international level to studying politics at a planetary, uh, interplanetary level, if you like. Sure, you took it a step further. That's incredible. And one of the things that I was watching a video of a presentation that you put together, I think it was in 2014, and you were showing different slides and case studies of people that claim they were our space brothers or ETs, and they looked totally human, you know, and they, they acted like us, they, they sounded like us. But one in particular that really caught my, my eye was Valiant Thor. And I was hoping you could talk to us about a few of those really cool claims, and and then we could segue from there. Uh, sure. Well, you know, this has been uh, one of those issues that um, has been a part of the extraterrestrial phenomenon for some years. I think the person that brought uh, that issue, um, you know, with a lot of kind of weight into the disclosure movement was a, a command sergeant major, Robert Dean who uh, worked with uh, NATO headquarters, um, and he says that back in 1964, uh, he went into a secure location in 
the supreme headquarters of uh, of NATO uh, that was at, at the time based in Paris, and he says he saw a report called the assessment, and he says that in the assessment it described what NATO had discovered through its military investigators uh, that in fact there was an extraterrestrial presence, um, and that uh, some of these extraterrestrials looked so much like us that they were indistinguishable and they could easily infiltrate human society. And uh, for the uh, military hierarchy, this was a big concern because it meant that uh, extraterrestrials uh, could have infiltrated not only the upper echelons of the NATO military hierarchy, but it even infiltrated the, uh, the political hierarchy of major nations such as the United States or Britain, France and other countries. So uh, Robert Dean's testimony really got a lot of people interested in this possibility that extraterrestrials could be living amongst us because uh, he had uh, so much credibility and uh, he, he, he was actually holding that rank of command such major, uh, which in the, the military um, hierarchy is the very senior non-commissioner ranking. Uh, so definitely that opened the door to many people considering this possibility. You know, and I also heard you talk about James Gilliland, and we've had the opportunity to speak with him here before at the Leak Project. Really cool guy. I've definitely got to get out to his ranch and video record some of the just amazing phenomenons that take place out there. But could you tell us a little bit about the, the experience you had out there? Uh, sure. Well, I went out there in uh, 2006. I attended uh, one of these conferences uh, as a as a presenter, and then he had these uh, nightly sky watchings, and I stayed there for a, a few days after the event. And it was, frankly, uh, very impressive. I mean, what we were seeing in the sky were these lights that would travel across the sky, and uh, James would do these intention experiments where he said, well, you know, everyone would send a thought to that, uh, to that light, and let's see what happens. And so uh, as people did that, uh, many of these lights would just kind of like pulse very, very brightly. Uh, and it seemed to be in some way connected to people's thoughts. So that was very impressive because uh, it seemed that uh, whatever it was that was piloting that craft should, could somehow monitor human consciousness and respond to that. Uh, so, uh, you know, while it wasn't the reason why I got into this field, it certainly was um, a very impressive demonstration of, of something that could have been uh, an extraterrestrial craft. How close did it get to you guys? Uh, it was very high. I mean, it was looking, uh, it was definitely uh, well above uh, the, the kind of height that uh, an aircraft would be traveling. So we're talking about 50,000 feet or higher than that. Um, so it, it was very distant. But it was just this pulsing that it would do um, periodically as it would go across the sky that, that got us interested. And where, do you, where does James think that they actually come from, the ones that he kind of manifests with his mind? Well, uh, James uh, says that uh, many of the craft that he sees from his Mount Adams ranch um, 
are associated with the Palladian extraterrestrials. Uh, he says that there's a base at Mount Adams, that these extraterrestrials have a base. And I can't remember if he said it was part of the uh, Confederation of Planets, but certainly that's a term that's uh, used by many whistleblowers or many contactees like James to describe a, a kind of grouping of very positive, benevolent extraterrestrials uh, that interact with uh, private civilians. And, and the, James has a collection of photographs as well and videos showing some strange things coming out of, out of the Mount Adams. So, um, yeah, definitely there's some really interesting things happening up there and, yeah, I would uh, recommend anyone to go up and have a look. Right, yeah, I mean, certainly incredible. Now, another thing, too, when I was watching those different slides the in your presentation, you, there's different times, time frames, like all the way back to the 40s or 50s, I think, maybe even before that. Now, I was hoping you could tell us about the first well-documented case of the, the ET phenomenon. Uh, well, probably the, the most impressive um, person to who have made these claims was uh, George Adamski back in 1952, uh, where he began meeting with uh, beings that claimed to, to come from Venus and were very Nordic-looking, um, kind of Northern European. And uh, you know, there were witnesses uh, to that first encounter that he had in uh, Desert Springs, uh, California. This was in, in, in November of 1952. And uh, there were six witnesses who saw a a craft emerged after a larger cigar-shaped vehicle flew overhead. Uh, there were some Air Force jets kind of pursuing the vehicle, and then a smaller kind of circular scout craft uh, suddenly appeared and landed near Adamski, and uh, one of the occupants got out, and the six witnesses could see it at a distance. And uh, Adamski proceeded to have a conversation uh, with this being, who, who said it was from Venus and it was very concerned with the um, atomic or, or the nuclear weapons program that was uh, underway at the time. And, uh, you know, since that time there have been others. Uh, probably the most impressive case of extraterrestrials amongst us was this case in Italy called the Friendship Case. Um, that occurred from 1956 up until 1978 uh, when a group of extraterrestrials were, li were living amongst us or, or living in uh, an area of northern Italy and meeting with up to a hundred different uh, witnesses, people, uh, some of them occupying very senior positions in the Italian um, society. You know, we're talking about a general in the police force, uh, diplomats and other kind of VIPs from other countries that were part of these meetings and uh, this occurred over that 22-year period, and there were um, quite a few shots or photographs of the flying saucers that were associated with these extraterrestrials. So, so there you have another case of um, you know, very well-documented extra, extraterrestrials uh, living amongst us and interacting with uh, private citizens. Now, you talked about the Venus, and um, what, I'm wondering if there's ever been anything from Mars, any claims of, I guess, call them Martians. Uh, well, well, that's an interesting one. 
the extraterrestrials who uh, claim to be from these various planets who've met with with people, um, they, predominantly they tend to be uh, from a lot of planets outside of our solar system and star systems such as Alpha Centauri, the Pleiades, Sirius, um, also uh, and the Andromeda constellation, uh, Alpha Draconis and so forth. Uh, a few have claimed to be from our solar system. Typically uh, it's been Venus, uh, the interior of Venus, um, or also planets uh, or, or moons such as Ganymede. Uh, and there have been very few that say they've been from Mars, but uh, you know, there have been a few cases. Uh, but there have been more recently uh, whistleblowers who say that, that they've travelled to Mars and that they have uh, participated in secret space programs that have uh, established bases on the surface of Mars or in the kind of um, uh, slightly underground of, of Mars. Uh, I haven't come across anyone claiming yet uh, that there are uh, secret bases on, on Venus, so you know there's no way of confirming you know people who say that they've been contacted by Venusians who live in the interior of uh, of Venus. But certainly, as far as Mars is concerned, yeah, there've been quite a few whistleblowers who say that they've been on the surface of Mars, met with indigenous Martians, or encountered them um, in various ways. And, uh, of course, the kind of odd sporadic case of uh, contactees saying that they've met uh, Martians. And I believe that Dansky was one of those, that he says he also had met a, a Martian on, on some of the craft that he uh, was, was invited up to. Yeah, and, you know, with all the different cases that you have studied, how many would you say total different types of extraterrestrial species uh, that you've recorded? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, what I did was I put together a, um, a fairly lengthy analysis of all of the contactee claims regarding uh, different uh, extraterrestrial civilizations, and uh, I cross-referenced them, and when I found that there were at least two independent witnesses talking about their interaction with these extraterrestrials, I, I would include them in my database. And so eventually I came up with a listing of uh, basically 20 different extraterrestrial civilizations that were interacting uh, with uh, humanity. Uh, typically there were you know, three or four witnesses, people who claimed that they have had contact with these extraterrestrials and it seemed to be um, a, a very significant pattern. Um, so some of these were acting in very positive ways of, of helping uh, the contactees learn galactic history, learn about the cover-up on the Earth. Uh, the other, some of the other cases were more, uh, let's say, um, kind of manipulative, where people were being abused or being abducted and maltreated in some way, and others were. Uh, more neutral. But I put all of those analyses together um, in a book called uh, Galactic Diplomacy. Um, so it's uh, those, different, those 20 different extraterrestrial civilizations are examined in depth 
it's there. And it's also a, a fairly lengthy article on my website. If people go to the recommended reading, they'll, they'll find that, um, that article, which deals with um, you know, not quite as many. I think it was about uh, 17 or so at the time that I examined. So if we were to look at some of the more unique species, um, you know, did some of the descriptions of not only the physical characteristics but different abilities come into play? And if they did, could you describe to us some of the more, I mean, were they all human looking or did they have different body types and, uh, you know, eyeballs, etc.? Well, the, the positive examples of contact uh, were pretty consistent in describing human-looking extraterrestrials. You know, some of them were quite tall. You know, we say we, we, you know, seven, eight, even nine feet. Uh, some of them had different uh, skin colouring. Uh, for example, uh, one of my favourites is uh, Alex Collier, who I got to meet a few times, and uh, he, he showed me where he had his contact experiences. And so I've worked with him uh, closely over the years. In his case, he says that he met with uh, a group of beings from the Andromeda constellation, and that uh, one of the beings uh, he, he des described as uh, approximately eight, nine feet, uh, but had uh, blue skin. It was humanoid or human-looking in every other way. He was bald, but just blue skin. Uh, Doctor Manhattan. <laughs> Doctor Manhattan. Have you, yeah, I don't know if you've seen that movie. You're not the Watchman. The Doctor Manhattan is the boo guy. <laughs> Oh, okay. No, I haven't watched that, but but definitely that's what uh, Alex is he described. Um, yeah, others others have described uh, very Nordic-looking extraterrestrials, as I mentioned, uh, George Adamski, and even the the Italian UFO case. Uh, they also uh, describe very human-looking uh, extraterrestrials interacting with us. Um, and then then you have the kind of reptilian-looking. Uh, races. Uh, they've been described variously as draconian reptilians or, or indigenous reptilians to the earth. Uh, the, diff the main difference between them is that the, the draconians uh, uh, come in very different sizes. Uh, that they have a kind of a, a, a warrior cast, which is about eight, nine feet, uh, very powerful uh, kind of uh, humanoids. You know, with uh, predominantly reptilian features and brown scales and so forth. Uh, the larger ones amongst them have kind of vestigial wings, and they're about 16 uh, feet tall, uh, very powerful psychically. Uh, you know, they could kind of look through you with their eyes. That's you know, they, they have this powerful psychic ability. Others, other reptilians are kind of uh, around seven foot tall. They're indigenous to, to the earth. They've been here um, for a very long time. Um, then there are the, the gray extraterrestrials. Uh, these are kind of like your classic uh, three, three foot, four foot tall grays uh, who have the big, the big black eyes, uh, the, the very expanded skull, kind of small body, but long arms, uh, thin feet, so thin legs. And then you have uh, another group, the, the praying mantis uh, type uh, beings. These are insectoids. Uh, they can also be very tall, seven foot, eight foot. Uh, and they really look like uh, a praying mantis. Uh, they are a highly evolved uh, extraterrestrial race. 
And uh, finally, there's another group uh, which, which are called the Tall Greys. They're, they're about six, six feet, seven feet tall. Uh, they look like a hybrid uh, between the, the smaller three foot, four foot greys and Nordic uh, humans. Uh, they seem to be a hybrid of those two, having characteristics of both. And, and they seem to be a kind of uh, diplomatic cast of the, the grey species. Now, you've mentioned a lot of different, I mean, you know, so I'm trying to figure out if they all kind of work together, if there's a hierarchy and the 16-foot draconian type entities are the ones that are kind of the generals and the overall archetype of the Galactic Federation that you're discussing. Could you get into detail on that? Uh, yeah, so there seems to be, uh, as far as the extraterrestrials who are interacting, directly interacting with humanity, uh, there seems to be two major groupings. Uh, you know, one is the kind of human-looking extraterrestrials who tend to be uh, very positive. Uh, they are described as belonging to some different organizations. Uh, one, uh, you know, typically it's called, uh, say, the Confederation of Planets. Another version is called the Alliance of Planets. And um, they, they just, uh, while they cooperate in many ways, they have very different uh, political philosophies. Um, the way in which I would describe it would be kind of like the way in which um, uh, the United States differs from, say, northern European nations when it comes to kind of like trouble spots around the around the planet. So, for in case, you know, like in cases where there's kind of like a breakdown of society, uh, the United States and Britain tends to be more interventionist and get involved, whereas kind of northern European countries tend to be more non-interventionist and want to be kind of more involved in peacekeeping operations uh, to help rebuild a society. So it seems that these human-looking extraterrestrials tend to fit into those different kind of political alliances, uh, one being more interventionist than the other. Uh, the other broad grouping uh, involves these kind of non-human-looking extraterrestrial groups that I mentioned. Uh, the dr Draconians are definitely uh, are the kind of uh, high up there in terms of uh, being the leaders of that, uh, in terms of being the generals, uh, these uh, 16 foot tall uh, draconians uh, tend to be in command, uh, but also the, the praying mantis uh, beings uh, tend to have a lot of influence as well from behind the scenes. Now, Betty and Barney Hill, one of the more famous cases of abduction, you know, they even had physical evidence of some type of extraterrestrial substance on their clothes or whatever, I had an opportunity to speak to their niece, uh, Kathleen Martin, uh, or great niece, super nice gal, and she's a direct, one of the, she works with MUFON, she's got a really cool position with them, and, uh, you know, she talked about how they saw this mantis-type uh, ET, and it was from the, I think, the Zeta Reticuli constellation. Is, do you have any verification on that? Have you found other parallels to that also? Yes, as you, as you mentioned, that was uh, the, the first kind of uh, abduction case that came to the attention of uh, researchers back in 1961, as I recall. Um, you know, having done a kind of a little bit of research into that, it seems that there were kind of mixed accounts as to who they, who they met. Um, 
it, it seemed that uh, at one point that it was a, a kind of um, a, a grey-looking extraterrestrial race, um, and, and then uh, there were mention of kind of human-looking extraterrestrials. So I am not convinced in that case uh, that it's quite clear exactly who it was that they they were meeting, um, what grouping. Uh, I, I remember, for example, that Barney Hill said something about um, some of the uh, that the extraterrestrials they meet they met uh, wore these black leather jackets and looked like Nazis. Uh, you know, which at the time, you know, many researchers thought was ridiculous. But at, given my more recent research, I think that in fact uh, that may have been probably uh, an accurate description of what they were meeting. And maybe at that time, uh, you know, these kind of space Nazis uh, were cooperating with uh, other extraterrestrial races such as the Greys. Yeah, if we could jump into that for a second, because there's a lot of speculation that the Nazis were, you know, there were certain branches of that Reich that would summon up different interstellar entities for technologies. Uh, the Thole Society is one that comes to mind, and there's speculation that the Nazis took off to Antarctica and, and got some ET tech. Uh, what research... Uh, if you've done any research on that subject, have you found some pretty cool parallels and in information in regards to that? Well, definitely, yes. In fact, I'm working on a case right now um, where this uh, new whistleblower who uh, worked with uh, the U.S. Navy uh, during the war actually was part of the debriefings of these Navy spies that were coming back to the United States to debrief their superiors about uh, the Nazi technology programs that they had been embedded into during the war years. And what these spies revealed was that the Nazis had developed uh, highly advanced um, spacecraft uh, using a variety of propulsion systems, uh, some of which were anti-gravity propulsion, and that the Nazis uh, had been successful in um, even uh, flying off the planet, and that the Nazis began cooperating um, with a group of extraterrestrials uh, called the Draconians. Um, as I mentioned earlier, these are a leading group of kind of more negatively involved or oriented extraterrestrials, and so that the Nazis uh, became heavily um, involved with these reptilians who essentially gave the Nazis or helped the Nazis uh, develop some of their technologies and to develop uh, bases in remote locations such as Antarctica and South America uh, where the Nazis uh, continued uh, the development of their spacecraft uh, using these advanced propulsion systems even after the war had finished. So, of course, uh, you have our Admiral Byrd's Operation High Jump in 1946-47, which really was an attempt to find the, the Nazi bases and, take, and either take them over or destroy them. But uh, Byrd's expedition uh, was basically very badly beaten back by fleets of uh, flying saucers that were under the control of the Nazis who um, during the, the war years were able to really take 
their Antarctic bases uh, to a, a very high level in terms of uh, having developed many operational spacecraft. And so right throughout the 50s and the 60s, uh, the Nazis expanded their space program uh, out of Antarctica and um, over the years kind of uh, got to infiltrate the US military industrial complex. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we're really expanding through their cooperation with these reptilians. And so, yes, it's very possible that uh, some of the contactee cases may in fact have involved these uh, Nazis that, that were essentially kind of abducting humans uh, for, you know, in a program uh, oriented to fulfill whatever agenda they had. Now, also, you've had, obviously, uh, a ton of time to gather multitudes of different outlets for information. And, you know, what are some other avenues that you've gathered information that not everybody could just go on to Google and punch it in the computer? Uh, well, the best information is uh, from the witnesses themselves who have been there. So getting their kind of uh, first-hand testimony is always important. And, and so uh, that's typically what I do is to uh, interview these people who have been involved in some of these programs and get their first-hand testimony and, and then get from them whatever documents they have that substantiate their testimonies. Um, in some cases, uh, they don't have any documents. Uh, that's... Uh, uh, some of the secret space program and the contactees, uh, the, the people involved in these, uh, typically don't have any documents uh, pertaining to their experiences that, that can help substantiate them. Uh, but in some cases, uh, people do have documents. So in those, so in those cases, uh, I, I look, you know, I examine the documents, um, examine the. the what the documents tell us about this person's claim. You know, do the documents substantiate what, what the person is claiming um, uh, or, or not? Uh, then you look at the kind of background of these people. You know, are they doing it because they, they want to uh, basically get some kind of public fame or are they doing it because they're genuinely want to, wanting to reveal the truth? Um, and then finally, I do the kind of political analysis, which is to cross-reference the claims of different whistleblowers and, and just kind of um, ensure that there's a, a consistency across the, uh, these claims. So if one person says that uh, you know they were taken up to the moon at a secret uh, base up there that was part of a secret space program, uh, that that is consistent with, say, another another whistleblower who's, who's uh, also gone through a similar experience. So I, I do that kind of cost uh, comparative analysis as well. Now, how many people have you talked to that claim to have been abducted or seen a UFO and you interview them and you find out they're full of crap? Uh, there are a few people uh, that I've interviewed or who I've studied that I simply discontinue uh, the case. Um, and typically that's because, um, you know, my feeling is that, you know, there's some deception, that they're not telling the truth or that they're being manipulated. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I really find anyone coming up to me and 
uh, you know, consciously lying. I have that's kind of rare. What is more common is that uh, people are part of a program, that they're an asset, and that they're being mind controlled uh, to come to you with information uh, that's kind of full of uh, red herrings or disinformation to kind of distract you, and and that's um, something that I do occasionally encounter and in those cases I eventually kind of drop the case or you know, s simply just don't acknowledge that person or don't follow up with that person. If we could get into that for a second, I find that fascinating. So you say that there's actually been cases where people have came to you and they, do they consciously, do they really think that they've been abducted and then you find out that they haven't or because you're, you're saying mind control like an asset. So I'm trying to piece that together. Well, you know, what I've, I've found consistently is that you know, people who get in touch with me, uh, that they appear to be very sincere with their claims. So they sound as though, you know, this is something that really happened to them. And, and so then I kind of like have to dig in uh, to those claims. Um, and, and then I find that um, you know, some of it doesn't match up, that it's not credible. Um, and I, I get the kind of sense when I look at those cases that um, it's because of some mind control factor. And typically, this is what the person themselves would acknowledge, that they would tell me that they, you know, that they were abducted and um, that the military were involved. Uh, and that they were subjected to some kind of mind control. And uh, when that happens, you can never be sure how much of the information they reveal to you is, is accurate as opposed to something that's been simply implanted into their, into their heads. So it's, um, it, it's like really just having a, a good knowledge base to be able to compare what a witness is revealing with what you've encountered in the past to see if there are any problems with their testimony. And, um, you know, if there are problems, then, um, you know, then I found that it's better just not to proceed with that case. Have you seen a UFO besides the time you were with James or ever had some type of contact with an ET firsthand? Um, I've seen... Other UFOs are kind of similar to what I saw up at Mount Adams. I've, I've been to other kind of uh, retreat locations where there have been contactees similar to James who have had experiences. And so I've, I've been to, you know, for example, to Bolivia where I saw uh, things happen there. I, I've been to Mount Shasta, again, similar things with another contactee. I've seen uh, things here in Hawaii as well, you know, kind of lights, but but it's always the, these distant lights that are very high altitudes, you know, we're talking 40,000, 50,000 feet or more. So definitely nothing uh, definitive, nothing that, you know, you look at that and you can say with 100% certainty, you know, that's an extraterrestrial craft. Um, you, know, you know, they're things that, as I said, kind of pulse and that look like uh, they might be extraterrestrial craft, but as, as I said, um, you can't be 100% inclusive. Now, you know, with so much publicity, um, and when I say, you know, so many 
opportunities to video record something with your cell phone. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to pick something up in the sky nowadays if you just look up there, if there's actually something there. So there's a lot of stuff on YouTube and LiveLink, and you can Google things and look on the web for UFO video footage. And I've seen some pretty cool stuff. And, but, you know, there's always that maybe. There's never been something that's came out that's, that's made me say, wow, that is without a shadow of a doubt, an extraterrestrial, um, you know, I, I wonder what force keeps that from the public. I mean, because whatever it is, it's, it's at a global scale. So with the research you've done, Michael, who do you think keeps all of that stuff? Because somebody's got to get it once in a while. I mean, somebody's got to pick up one of those gems on their cell phone, and then all of a sudden they get a visit by somebody or something, and then, you know, poof, it's gone. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I know that uh, psychological warfare has been uh, a very important part of the cover-up since, uh, since the early 1950s. Um, and that all types of media have been uh, manipulated to try and basically sow a lot of confusion when it comes to the topic of UFOs. And I know that there have been many really clear-looking UFOs that have uh, made their way to, to YouTube in the form of uh, people claiming that they saw these UFOs, and they turn out to be CGI hoaxes. Now, um, I, I think that some of that, or maybe a lot of that, is probably because it is part of a kind of psychological warfare program to kind of like just discredit any serious uh, study of the phenomenon by just kind of flooding uh, the, the the public with the hoax uh, UFO cases. Um, in the early days, in the 1940s and 50s, is when you didn't have uh, programs uh, such as Adobe Photoshop or CGI special effect programs, it was much harder to kind of manipulate photos. And so some of those older photos and, and video going back to the 50s and 60s, uh, they're, they're probably even now still the most impressive photos um, that concern UFOs and extraterrestrial life. Um, as, as far as what kind of gets uploaded uh, to YouTube by the general public, I tend to stay well clear of that, you know, because simply speaking, I'm not a, an image analyst, I'm not a specialist in being able to kind of like analyze uh, CGI uh, manipulation. And so it takes a lot of time to research one of these cases. So I much prefer to put, kind of put my energy into sources that I think are more credible. So for example, I've, you know, on my website, I've, I've done uh, quite, a, quite a lot, large number of articles looking at uh, NASA images uh, from the International Space Station or from the Curiosity rover or from the SOHO satellites that are orbiting the sun, which show a phenomenon because at least with, with those sources, you know, you can't have any hoaxing. You don't have any, anyone at NASA um, you know, trying to manipulate the public into believing that, you know, there's a, that there's a, some sort of life form on Mars or, or that there's a, a kind of a spacecraft visiting the International Space Station. So those are cases that I think are much more legitimate. And, uh, yeah, some of them are, are pretty pretty compelling. Uh, there was one in January of 2014 which showed a, a kind of um, a dart-shaped craft docked 
with the International Space Station. And uh, you know, that's one of my favourites because it's so clear that this is something uh, docked with the International Space Station. But NASA never really tried to explain it, or NASA hasn't explained it even to this day. Uh, but it's a very clear case, I think, of, uh, of, of a spacecraft. Uh, docking with the ISS. Uh, then you have some other kind of uh, NASA images, like the there's the famous uh, STS-48 film footage of uh, of a UFO uh, leaving the Earth's orbit, and then some kind of directed energy weapon uh, is is um, focused on it from the Earth, and then this uh, this kind of UFO makes a right angle turn. So you know that's a very clear. A demonstration uh, by uh, the, the live streaming out of one of the that was the space shuttle's camera system, showing a UFO being targeted by an Earth-based directed energy system um, that had to take evasive action. You know, I've seen. I do remember this video that I saw last year of. It was it was your typical flying disc UFO, and it, there was like this window, and in the cockpit you could see it looked like you know I mean it looked kind of like these two gray type aliens bouncing around in there. Um, have you seen that video footage? You know what I'm referring to? I'm not sure if that's it was in like Turkey or not Turkey or okay. it was a professor somewhere in Europe or the Middle East, approximately. Uh, yes, I know the one. Uh, that's uh, Turkey. Uh, yes, I've actually spent a little time uh, kind of looking through that case, and I've, I found that to be very compelling. Uh, very credible people have been involved in analysing that, that uh, Turkey UFO case. And uh, I know uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Roger Lear, was involved in, uh, in that case, uh, as well as... Um, uh, some, uh, a Turkish UFO researcher that I'm very familiar with, and so yes, that's one one case uh, that I think is uh, very credible, showing uh, what appears to be some uh, one or two extraterrestrials in the cockpit of some flying saucer craft. I mean, that one's almost too good to be true. If if it is legit, I find that one fascinating. And there's so much speculation about where the greys actually come from, if they're just clones, if they're biosuits, if they're evolved humans, for, you know, millions of years from now, that their bodies got frail and their heads got really big because they were more of a sponge for knowledge. And that's kind of what James says about the greys, is they, they don't really care much about, um, I guess you could say, imagination Anymore, it's more just knowledge and obtaining information, kind of like the Borg, I guess, plugging it into the mainframe. So, I mean, do you think that the greys and these reptilians are, you talk about some of them being from Earth, but you think some of them come from other planets? Or do you believe in interdimensional type entities? I mean, where does where has your research led you? Well, I, I think the whole idea of uh, different dimensions is an important one to to consider. Um, you know, mainstream scientists actually are uh, now accepting that there could be um, as many as uh, 11 different dimensions. Uh, I know with uh, Michio Kaku, uh, you know, with strict theory, that uh, that's compatible with uh, 
this idea that there can be 11 different dimensions. And I think that's probably uh, a very, uh, very close to the mark because some of these uh, extraterrestrial craft don't appear to be coming from a, a location um, in space. Uh, when they, they just suddenly materialise. So that would suggest that they're kind of uh, coming through, through a, a different dimension or a different time portal, you know, which would explain why it is that, you know, one second they're there and another second they're gone. Um, so I, I think that there, there is such a thing as interdimensional travel uh, as well as our temporal travel, that is time travel, as, as well, of course, as the kind of more conventional space travel that we're all familiar with, uh, where different types of propulsion, you know, take you from one point in space-time to another point in space-time. Yeah, folding those dimensions and just cutting through the center of it. Now, you know, the influence that ETs have in our everyday life, politics, the Department of Defense, education, media, entertainment, sports. What have you discovered with the possibility of some uh, off-Earth race controlling the scenes, behind the scenes, kind of like a puppet master? I think that there is a, a lot of kind of control and manipulation of the Earth. I don't know whether... Uh, you, you need to kind of like um, point to some sort of extraterrestrial influence uh, because we have a lot of very powerful secret societies on, on Earth and that uh, these societies go back uh, you know, thousands of years and um, they tend to use kind of like occult forces, um, things such as black magic, satanic rituals and so forth that uh, they use to kind of like uh, manipulate people and to exert control over the population. I, I think that uh, in our kind of modern day and age, uh, it's very clear that at least in the United States that uh, we really live in a, cor a corp corporatocracy. Uh, the corporations really run the United States and that uh, these corporations in themselves, um, there have been studies done and that uh, these studies show that you know, the, uh, out of the many thousands or tens of thousands of major corporations around the planet, um, ultimate control of these corporations comes down to kind of like less than 100 families. And I think that's where you get the idea of the Illuminati, the, the cabal, uh, these are people with kind of like uh, ancient bloodlines or come from these kind of like uh, um, aristocratic families and that uh, they have great wealth, great influence, and uh, they're associated with these secret societies. Um, what's very significant is that they do ally themselves with uh, extraterrestrial groups, some of the more negative extraterrestrial groups that I was mentioning earlier, uh, like the reptilians, or the, um, in particular, the draconians and some of these insectoid races. And, and so you do have that kind of uh, interlocking web of influences. But certainly, uh, yes, uh, there are off-world civilizations that do play a role in the overt uh, control and manipulation of planet Earth. Now, um, you know, whether it's, it's like a 
uh, kind of like if, if you think of the Earth as a prison planet and you think of the the cabal as, as kind of like uh, the, the jailers, uh, the, the warden, if you like, uh, then the off-world extraterrestrials are, are kind of like the uh, the owners of the jail, if you like. Yeah, the owners of the jail. That's Man, it does seem more and more like this planet, as amazing and beautiful as it is, could turn into a prison-type planet with the technologies that are available depending on who gets access to the computer screen and the buttons to push. You know, I mean, imagine a microchip society where some uh, very unhappy individual or individuals decided to, you know, let's just wipe out 95% of the dissidents and start over. But, you know, there's a lot of speculation out there Michael, that there's this shape-shifting reptilian race that is in politics and, like you say, many of the aristocratic bloodlines. Do you think that there's some truth there, or do you feel that it's more, you know, the people that are at the very top levels are fully human, but they're being influenced, you know, maybe telepathically or psychically or in some type of blackmail or magic rituals from these off-world entities? Uh, I think it tends to be more the latter. Now, I know David Icke's uh, books are very... We're making pizzas, but healthier pizzas. First up is a whole wheat pita pizza. Who doesn't want a little personalized pizza? The second pizza is a white pizza. I like to throw in fresh veggies, some reduced fat cheese. The last pizza is a thin crust eggplant parmesan. Popular. Um, in terms of you know, you know, like the, the the British royals and other kind of leading personalities are really reptilian shapeshifters. I I don't agree with that. I think uh, you know what's really going on is that we do have uh, reptilians that uh, kind of interact with humanity and that live amongst us, but that they use technology and mind control to hide themselves. So they tend to be more behind the scenes. I don't think any major public figure is a reptilian shapeshifter. Um, you know, some of them may have uh, reptilian uh, DNA in them, um, so that's certainly true. But uh, I, I think kind of uh, David Icke's idea of them uh, having kind of like enough uh, reptilian DNA that they can kind of like consciously sh- uh, shapeshift is, is probably... Uh, not correct, but I, I think uh, you know he's he's partially correct in that there that there very likely is some kind of technology uh, that the reptilians use to hide themselves. But I don't think that uh, that that technology would uh, work in in a, in a public arena. You know, like someone like uh, Queen Elizabeth or Prince Charles. You know, these are very highly public people, you know, with cameras on them all the time. Um, and so, you know, if, if they were reptilian shapeshifters who could only hold that form for a certain, you know, only hold the human form for a certain amount of time before they had to kind of shapeshift back, then I think, um, you know, they would have been caught out a long time ago. I think what's more likely is that you have a, a lot of kind of elite people in the cabal, the ruling families, who stay behind the scenes who might look human but uh, possess technology that uh, really disguises that they are, in fact, reptilians. And I think that's probably very widespread, uh, that, that we probably have many hundreds of thousands of millions of reptilians 
live amongst us using these technologies and mind control to basically uh, hide. They live. <laughs> Remember that yeah, movie? Exactly. Yeah. yeah and, exactly. You know, and I certainly, I mean, that's definitely a possibility. If you think about it, we're only seeing most people, even with really good eyesight, pick up about 0.01% of the electromagnetic light spectrum, and then their brain filters out another 50% of what that data is being processed. So there's a lot of stuff out there that our physical eyes don't pick up. And, you know, there's even a, a new telescope, a new lens that was put in a telescope. I'm going to have to look through my notes and find the name of it. It's a new, you know, you can, you can Google new telescope that sees things that your physical eyes don't see. But it's, uh, they've been putting this telescope, pointing it towards areas of, like, military areas and stuff like that. And it's picking up a lot of, like, weird stuff. You know, that's, there's something there, but... Nobody else has seen it but this lens, so makes you wonder what kind of interstellar stuff could be popping in and out of these different dimensions, and you get into the whole quantum physics and quantum entanglement, so it's, it's very fascinating indeed. And do you think, Michael, that there are some connections with the Nephilim, uh, you know, and also the fallen angels talked about in the Book of Enoch? Uh, well, yeah, that's uh, very interesting, uh, Rex. The references to to the Nephilim in the in the Book of Enoch um, and in the in Genesis as well uh, that uh, ancient humans societies were aware of uh, extraterrestrials. Well, they called them gods or angels, fallen angels. They used those restrictive terms, uh, but today we would describe them as uh, extraterrestrials. Um, because they were basically non-humans or they were beings using technology uh, that originated off-planet. And uh, yes, uh, these uh, Nephilim interacted with human society and um, they basically formed the, the ruling elite. Um, and, and it's not just the Book of Enoch. Uh, there's the, the King's List um, uh, from Sumeria and um, also Egypt, uh, Manitho uh, came up with a history of uh, Egypt that uh, uh, it was uh, prior to the 30 Egyptian dynasties where he talked about the gods and the demigods and uh, you know, these were very powerful beings that had uh, advanced technologies and uh, certainly I, I think uh, we could say that uh, these uh, were extraterrestrial visitors um, who had established uh, colonies on the Earth, uh, had probably, uh, well, I think we, we can be pretty uh, confident that they actually were genetically interacting with humanity, you know, either through biological experiments or through kind of uh, interbreeding, uh, that they were creating some kind of human extraterrestrial hybrids. And this has been one of the uh, things that I've come across again and again in my uh, research is the, the whole idea of uh, uh, kind of uh, human extraterrestrial hybrids. Uh, this is not just a modern phenomenon, of course, with the abduction phenomenon. You know, we talked about Betty and Barney Hill, but uh, you know, there are many others that talk about uh, Greys conducting these biological experiments to to create hybrids. Uh, 
there's a colleague, Dr. David Jacobs from Temple University in Pennsylvania, who's convinced that the greys are basically conducting this long-term hybridization program to create these hybrids that will eventually supplant humanity on the surface of the planet. I, I think that this has been going on for for many tens of thousands, uh, not hundreds of thousands of years. Um, some of the contactees and the uh, whistleblowers that I've come across refer to uh, 22 different hybridization experiments uh, that have been conducted over an extended period of time and, and I think that's uh, pretty consistent with my own analysis. You know, when I when I talked earlier about the uh, 20 different extraterrestrial races that have been uh, uh, inter interacting with humanity, uh, the bulk of those races uh, often uh, uh, involved in some kind of a hybridization uh, experiment with humanity. So I think we, we probably can be reasonably confident that uh, throughout human history that, you know, somewhere in that range of around 20 different extraterrestrial civilizations have been genetically interacting with humanity to create all of the major racial groups on the surface. You, you totally just read my mind because the question that I was going to ask you, and you answered it for me, thank you, was do you think that extraterrestrials have had an influence in our physical creation? So. Uh, but let me let me go back even a step further. Do you think that they were our original creators? And I don't mean in spirit essence, but in physical essence, like test tube type stuff. Uh, yes. Well, you know that kind of gets into a theological issue. Is uh, like, well, you know, if um, the, the first humans uh, were. You know, create, you know, how were the first humans created? Were they created by kind of extraterrestrials that came here and kind of like, you know, left some of their own progeny or uh, kind of interacted with some of the early hominid species? Uh, well, then, you know, who created the extraterrestrials? So you can kind of go back and back in a kind of infinite kind of loop in terms of finding out, you know, who created who. But but I think there's a another plausible theory, and this, this comes from... Uh, 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 a researcher, Michael Cremo, and he's come up with this theory called devolution. And I think there's something uh, to that theory where he, he basically says that uh, well, what you know, what really happened is that there was a kind of evolution uh, from some kind of spiritual realm, higher dimensions, if you like, where that higher consciousness uh, kind of like... Uh, uh, let's just say, moved into our material uh, plane and created for itself a material body. So it's it's kind of like uh, kind of like the idea of uh, you know, movies like uh, um, Avatar, where you you kind of get this where you can move consciousness across the dimensions into another physical body or to kind of manifest the body. I, I think that we probably uh, are very first humans or the very first extraterrestrials, however you want to begin, probably were created in that manner where they were these kind of high dimensional beings that just materialized in a particular physical environment and um, manufactured a physical body 
out of that local environment and then began to interact and evolve over the eons. Devolution. It's uh, it's fascinating, and I've often wondered. The more we get into technology, yeah, it's it's great to be able to go onto Google and research all this information and have it right on your fingertips. But what does that really do uh, to the construction and makeup of your brain when you look at the way your synapses shoot and everything's created and put together in there with your thoughts, etc.? So it's it's almost like it's a catch twenty two, and there needs to be some type of balance. You you see footage of monks out in Tibet and high mountainous areas where the weather is 30 below and they're outside in robes and they're sitting down and they're controlling their body temperature to the point where the snow around them is melting and the people that are recording it with giant fur coats on are shaking with gloves. It's just amazing that, you know, that kind of stuff was probably a lot more accessible thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago via thought and mind, but because we are kind of devolving spiritually. It's definitely for another topic, and I'm glad you brought up Michael Cremo because he's a, he's a great guy, and we've had him on our, uh, on our show here before. Now, um, I know that we've gone an hour, and we talked about you, you know, maybe going a little bit longer. Do you feel okay going a little bit longer, or do you want to call it a night? Um, yeah, let's, let's do a little bit longer, half an hour. Fantastic. Yeah, really appreciate it because you've got so much just awesome information. I, I really appreciate you letting me pick your brain here, and, and the audience is just enthralled with this information that you're bringing to the table. Now, if we could also possibly jump into your Kennedy book on disclosure and the most recent work you came out with, the Secret Space Program, for the last 30 minutes that we have. Now, the media today is really, in my opinion, conditioning the masses to be frightened and scared to hell out of, you know, from aliens. You know, oh my gosh, you've got Cloverfield, Independence Day, the new Independence Day that's coming out. The majority of the movies out now portray extraterrestrials as this violent uh, race of entities that want to just destroy Earth and blow everything up. And I think all the way back into the 80s, and the late 70s. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 38, so I, I didn't have a chance to watch much when I was one, two, and three years old, but I do remember Star Wars. <laughs> and it seemed like the, the extraterrestrial presence was pretty cool. You've got E.T. and ALF, and a lot of the sitcoms and shows were portraying the extraterrestrial presence as cool, as happy, and, and good, good people. And now it's like, oh, they're going to kill you, they're going to shoot you with a laser beam, they're going to blow everybody up, and they're going to eat you next. So why do you think the, the media is doing that? I think there's definitely a psychological conditioning that's been going on for a long time. Um, I, I know that uh, one of the things that uh, would make it a lot easier uh, for those that have been running these uh, secret space programs uh, that have been kind of managing the extraterrestrial projects behind the scene is that um, if the day comes when a lot of this has to be disclosed, that it's done in a way that maintains much of the national security apparatus. So in other words, uh, you know, people will say that this is, uh, these beings are very dangerous and that it's, uh, that it's good that the military intelligence community is looking after it. And, uh, and, and because so much of the military intelligence community is opaque in the way it, it operates, then basically it would be um, more or less giving the... Uh, the military intelligence community carte blanche in managing the kind of extraterrestrial issues that would be arising. 
And so I think that's probably a major reason why uh, people are being very heavily conditioned uh, to believe that uh, extraterrestrials are a threat because all you need to do is, is not even kind of like uh, convince people that, there are, that they are a, uh, a, a dire threat to humanity, but at the very least um, present them as an enigma, as something that uh, could turn on you in a, in a way that, that uh, uh, could lead to very unhealthy results. And so uh, then we would want the military intelligence community to play an important role in managing that presence. Uh, we would want uh, the military industrial complex to kind of like build more powerful uh, spacecraft and weapon system to, in case we needed that. So you know, basically it would, this kind of uh, conditioning, this psychological conditioning to get us to buy into extraterrestrials are dangerous, enigmatic, and kind of uh, capable of eating us, uh, it really does play into this whole uh, military-industrial complex, maintaining uh, overall control uh, and maintaining uh, financial spending, black budget spending on these projects. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Keep the masses scared, and then they're not going to care if you're spending trillions of dollars on black budget defense type stuff. Definitely makes sense. You know, so let's get into the book, Kennedy's Last Stand, Eisenhower, UFOs, MJ-12, and JFK's assassination. What did you compile together in that book? Uh, basically, what I uh, found was that uh, President Kennedy uh, was uh, trying to assert presidential authority over classified UFO files. Uh, Kennedy was aware of secret space programs. He was aware of extraterrestrial intelligence uh, because uh, during the 1940s, uh, in fact, uh, in 1945, for example, uh, Kennedy traveled to Germany as a guest of the then Secretary of Navy, uh, James Forrestal. In 45, Forrestal was there in uh, July uh, to attend the Potsdam meeting where President Truman basically uh, traveled and um, gave the go-ahead for Operation Paperclip. And what Operation Paperclip found was that many of the Nazi flying saucer programs had been successful and that uh, many of these uh, craft had been built through the uh, German Kriegsmarine, which is their, their, their Navy. And uh, so the U.S. Navy was very interested in what what the Germans were doing. They wanted to replicate those technologies. Um, and, and, and Kennedy was there um, watching all of this and actually got to see uh, these technologies at first hand and actually wrote a book about it. Or, or at least he wrote a, a diary. He recorded what some of the things that he had seen, the unclassified versions of what he had seen in his uh, diaries, and they, these were posthumously published in a book called Prelude to Leadership. Um, and, and so what that book basically helps substantiate is that uh, Kennedy was very aware of advanced German technologies and that um, right throughout the 40s and 50s, uh, these German uh, advanced German technologies were being uh, developed um, in various uh, U.S. facilities and that uh, various spacecraft, anti-gravity vehicles, programs involving extraterrestrial life were moving forward, and that uh, during the 1950s, 
uh, ultimate authority over these programs slipped out of the hands of the executive branch of government. And so President Eisenhower was very disturbed over the fact that he no, no longer exercised direct authority over these um, over these types of extraterrestrial-related programs. And so uh, when Kennedy came to power, uh, Eisenhower basically warned Kennedy that he really needed to reassert presidential authority over these programs or things would not be good for the future. And I think that's why Kennedy was ultimately assassinated, because he was on the verge of succeeding in his efforts in establishing um, kind of... Uh, presidential authority over your classified UFO files and the secret space programs. You know, there was other, there's other things out there that I've heard too. You know, he was going to try and create a, a gold-backed currency again, so he was taken out. And I have heard the theory that you're discussing also. So that's interesting. I'd definitely like to read that book. Is it available on Amazon, or do you go directly to your website to purchase it? Uh, you can do both. Um, Amazon is uh, probably the easiest for most people, and uh, yes, but if you want an autographed uh, copy, then people can just come to my website. Oh yeah, that's definitely the way to go then. Just go to your website, uh, exopolitics.org, folks. Now also, insiders reveal secret space programs and extraterrestrial alliances. I mean, that's in and of itself a fascinating topic, and I'm sure we could put together four podcasts on that, but, you know, if you could kind of condense that in 10 minutes or so and give our listeners a really good glimpse and taste into that material, that'd be fantastic. Uh, sure. Well, in that book, what I do is really investigate the claims of uh, Corey Good, who is a uh, a whistleblower who came forward in early uh, 2015 or late 2014 uh, when he did his first uh, audio interviews. But basically, he came up with a remarkable story about being involved in a secret space program for a 20-year period from uh, 1987 to 2007, and that um, after he completed his 20-year uh, service, that he was uh, age-regressed and sent back in time uh, to when he uh, basically began that service in 1987. So basically he said that um, you know, in that period, 1987 to 2007, he lived that 20-year period twice, which it sounds very bizarre, but the thing was that he wasn't the first person to say that. There was another whistleblower by the name of Michael Ralph, who back in the year 2000 came out with a book called The Mars Record, and he said uh, something very similar, that he was uh, recruited um, into a secret space program back in 1976, and after serving for 20 years, then he was age-regressed and uh, sent back in time uh, back to 1976. And there was a third whistleblower, uh, Randy Kramer, uh, saying the same thing, uh, that this had happened to him. So when I looked at these different whistleblower accounts and found that there was this pattern, I, I realized that there was, uh, you know, there was some, something really going on here that was worth examining. So then I began to look very closely at Corey Good's claims about the uh, origins of these secret space programs. He identified five different space programs, and um, basically the first one began in, uh, during the Nazi era, 
and we talked a little bit about that earlier uh, with the uh, what, what the Germans, what the Nazis were doing with advanced aerospace technologies and agreements with reptilians uh, that uh, Corey Good described that same phase um, and basically said that this was the origin of one of the secret space programs that he called the Dark Fleet. Now, while, while that was happening, especially after the Second World War, uh, the U.S. Navy played the lead role in establishing uh, a U.S. secret space program. And uh, eventually that became operational in the 1980s. Now, you know, the, the interesting thing here for the readers uh, to pay attention to is um, you have the Nazis in the 1940s uh, developing anti-gravity spacecraft and developing uh, fleets of these uh, spacecraft in the 40s and 50s. And, and the United States Navy was able to do it in the 1980s. So that, that's a kind of 40-year difference. And it's like, well, why was there such a gap? If the Nazis had succeeded in the 40s, why didn't the US kind of follow soon after? And according to my research was that uh, basically uh, the, the U.S. military industrial complex had been infiltrated uh, by the Nazis and that the Nazis basically slowed down through sabotage and manipulation and, and uh, other forms of control uh, the development of, of a, a wholly U.S. space program. Um, so the U.S. space program uh, was called uh, Solar Award that became operational in the 1980s. Uh, and then the uh, corporations that helped in the development of those uh, battle fleets that uh, were built for the US Navy, these corporations eventually established their own separate space program that was under the authority of the, of the Majestic 12 group which was the group that was running the extraterrestrial programs, running the secret space program, um, and wanted to, and basically were responsible for the Kennedy assassination. Uh, this Majestic 12 program uh, basically wanted to internationalize the space program. They, they wanted to kind of go outside of the U.S. Constitution and basically sideline uh, the U.S. Navy and the program that it was created. So you had this third program, and according to Corey Good, this was called the Interplanetary Corporate Conglomerate, um, and this this what became very quickly became a very powerful uh, space program because the, cor the corporations were the entities that were building the spacecraft that were eventually being uh, purchased by the U.S. Navy as part of the Solar Warden program. So those same uh, corporations built these same craft, but even more evolved versions later uh, for this kind of Majestic 12 organization that worked very closely with um, US uh, secret societies and a global cabal of corporations and secret societies uh, that were all interlinked through these historic bloodlines. Um, so that, that's the third secret space program, and that became operational in the late 1980s. Um, and then in the early 1990s, there was a fourth secret space program called the Galactic 
league, uh, the, the Global Galactic League of Nations, according to uh, Corey Good. And um, you know, and I examined these claims in terms of uh, you know the end of the Cold War, uh, what Ronald Reagan was doing um, in giving speeches, public speeches, uh, basically saying that there was an extraterrestrial threat and that humanity needed to come together to deal with this extraterrestrial threat. And I believe that that is why this uh, Global Galactic League of Nations was allowed to go forward because there had been. Uh, agreements reached at the United Nations uh, for uh, all the all the major nations to cooperate in building this secret space uh, fleet, um, and one of the conditions for doing that would be to end the Cold War, and that was uh, something that I examined as, as very plausible given the the conditions uh, that led to the end of the Cold War and the events. So that. You know, Corey Good's theory there, or his claim, I, I felt was very consistent with uh, geopolitical events as they occurred in the 1980s and 90s with the end of the Cold War. And then finally, you have uh, this fifth secret space program that Corey Good describes as uh, special access programs. And this basically um, is a, a number of uh, unacknowledged special access programs in the United States and other countries that are. Uh, kind of working at a much smaller level, doing their own thing as far as advanced technologies that are relevant to the secret space program. So this fifth program is really a rubric of a lot of rogue entities that do all sorts of things. And so I gave examples in the, in the book about uh, how, how these uh, rogue entities would, would operate for example, uh, the development of um, directed energy weapons that could be deployed from these um, space stations that are in permanent orbit around the Earth and that there was uh, you know, good evidence that the 9-11 um, towers, the collapse of those was due to uh, these directed energy weapons uh, being basically used to the trade centers. Um, and so that was uh, something that could help explain what, what happened. It wasn't the whole picture, but I think it was part of the, the kind of events leading to 9-11. Um, so, yes, so, so good kind of like described these five different space programs uh, that kind of like were in existence during his uh, service from 1987 to 2007. And then good basically said that in 2011 uh, there was... Uh, a new actor or a, a new grouping of extraterrestrials coming into our solar system, which Good uh, met. He met the representatives of these beings, uh, and they uh, he called them the Sphere Being Alliance. That's that's the term that the secret space programs called these beings, and they had very powerful technologies. Um, very, uh, they had these enormous spheres, kind of planets. Size spheres, some of them as, as large as Jupiter, that were positioned in strategic points around the solar system, um, and that um, sometime around 2014, 2015, around you know what, Michael, and also Michael, around. The can we yes. stop real quick because something I don't know what happened, man, but your voice just completely. Uh, we, we went to as far as you were talking about these planet-sized spheres that have been strategically placed in the solar system by these um, this 
maybe type two civilization or something that you're referring to, and then all of a sudden there was nothing. So could we continue where you left off in regards to the planet-sized spheres as big as Jupiter? Sure, sure. Well, so these um, planet-sized spheres as big as Jupiter suddenly began appearing after 2011, and they began to locate themselves at strategic points around uh, our solar system and uh, even around our planet, and eventually what happened was that in 2014, 2015, they created a frequency grid, uh, kind of like a quarantine, if you like, of our entire solar system and our, and our planet. And they did this, uh, there were two primary reasons that uh, Corey uh, uh, identified. One was that uh, they were basically trying to filter these incoming cosmic energies that were associated with the kind of end times scenario with our planet and that uh, they wanted to ensure that those incoming cosmic energies uh, didn't uh, lead to kind of catastrophe on the earth or lead to our sun suddenly going uh, going into some hyperactive phase that would extinguish life or imperil life on the planet earth. So that was one of the reasons. Uh, the other reason was that they basically wanted to prevent um, different extraterrestrial races and also the different space programs that have been established on Earth from uh, leaving our solar system or entering into our solar system because uh, this sphere being alliance, and I'm glad you used the term uh, you know, being a type 2 or type 3 civilization because that seems to be exactly what they were, that these were uh, really a, a type 3 civilization and that, uh, that they were establishing this kind of solar system-wide quarantine because they said that um, all of the all of the type one and type two extraterrestrial civilizations that previously had been interacting with humanity uh, now they had to go through this kind of um, this kind of earth changes this kind of infusion of cosmic energies that would uh, raise the frequency of everything that was happening on the earth and so. Um, Corey Good described that process and he described uh, a range of negotiations that then subsequently happened as the different space programs, as the different extraterrestrial alliances all began to talk about, well, how they could manage uh, themselves in this new scenario with this kind of type 3 civilization suddenly establishing a solar system-wide quarantine and a planetary quarantine as well because this is one of the things that they did was uh, they came in and they basically said, okay, uh, the Earth uh, up until now has been controlled by these ruling elites, the Cabal, the Illuminati, working with uh, the Draconian Federation Alliance. So we're going to kind of like even even the, the play, level the playing field. We're going to enable the uh, Solar Warden Program uh, to, to have more powerful technologies and we'll work with them so that they could kind of like um, establish a level playing field and create a kind of cold peace, if you like, uh, so that um, uh, the different uh, actors could negotiate and work out some kind of uh, long-term solution as everyone faced this kind of uh, scenario of uh, incoming cosmic energies. And ultimately, uh, according to Corey, uh, this would culminate in some kind of disclosure event, uh, a disclosure event uh, such as 
thousands of documents uh, being released into the public arena substantiating uh, extraterrestrial visitation and also the existence of these uh, secret space programs and that uh, after this uh, disclosure event, then there would be something like uh, this kind of end times ascension event that you know different groups have been talking about for, for decades now. Do you believe in Nibiru? Uh, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I, I think that there are many large planets in the Kuiper Belt uh, that have kind of long-term um, orbits of uh, around our solar system. Um, if I, if, uh, that's a very interesting question given what uh, you know, Corey has very recently revealed uh, that uh, Zechariah Sitchin, that much of his information was actually contrived, that the whole idea of Nibiru being a populated planet that had these, uh, that had the kind of Anunnaki with superior technologies who came to the Earth and basically bioengineered humanity 400,000 years ago, that a lot of that was contrived uh, because the, the cabal, the Illuminati, wanted to infiltrate human society with that idea of extraterrestrial creators because they have an agenda to create a new global religion. Uh, so yes, uh, at the moment I am probably more in the sceptical camp uh, of, a, of, a, of a Nibiru along the lines of what Zechariah Sitchin has described, but I certainly think that uh, there are probably many other uh, large planetary bodies out in the Cooper Belt, and some of them might be uh, you know, kind of like super-Earths. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it just certainly seems like there's been a... I'm neutral when it comes to Nibiru and Planet X. I, I've had some really good guests on the show that have shown some really cool photos. It definitely looks like there's some type of planet or dwarf star next to our own, but, you know, I don't know. So it, it's good to hear an alternative opinion on that, and I've never heard the theory about the Jupiter-sized planets. I have heard the possibility of Earth being a under some type of galactic quarantine as well as the solar system just because of, like you said, the, the dark cabal that seems to pull the majority of the strings for most people that have been assimilated by the Borg. Um, you know, they, they seem to have a very dark presence to them, and, you know, can, can we prove that? No, but it, it, it certainly is very interesting, and, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt it. It's, it's fascinating. So I, I got to tell you, Michael, it's been just a real pleasure to speak with you. I mean, you are an encyclopedia of knowledge, and your website is fantastic, exopolitics.org. You know, um, definitely, folks, and people that have had a, an opportunity to listen to this broadcast, make sure to go to his website and pick up one of his books because, man, just a ton of information. What's next for you, Michael? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm uh, doing uh, some research on this uh, new uh, secret space program whistleblower, and uh, I've done some interviews with him, so I'm now kind of in the process of uh, doing some editing of the videos and, the, uh, and his testimony and, and kind of looking uh, at some of his claims and following through with the documents that he's presented. Uh, so, yeah, uh, there's definitely a lot of work involved in, in getting his kind of testimony more out there and looking at uh, more whistleblower 
as they come forward to reveal uh, what they know about these secret space programs. So I just want to thank you, Rex, for having me on the show, on your show. And, and it sounds as though the Leak Project is doing really great work in in putting out very helpful information uh, to your audience to help lift up consciousness. And I really appreciate everything you do to kind of like spread the word. So thank you. Absolutely, and thank you. We'll definitely stay in touch. And may the force be with you, my friend. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
completely clandestine. No, is this no that the, uh, Certainly, this collaboration between the Academy of Sciences and the Ministry of Defense was not paraded. I mean, formally, these studies were closed. Classified organizations took part in these studies. This research should have a secret character. Colonel Boris Sokolov was the coordinator of the investigation. Shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, he met with American investigative journalist George Knapp. Sokolov told us that just as in America, 90 to 95 percent of these cases could be explained away, but the remaining 5 to 10 percent could not be easily explained. The 13-year Soviet UFO study scrutinized some of the most puzzling sightings in Russian history. In 1968, a cameraman documenting a test of a Soviet jet fighter noticed a huge triangular object in the sky. He focused his camera on the object and caught it on film. an unusual aerial display sent tentacles of light streaming down over the town of Petrozavosk. Some claim the event caused fine holes to be glazed in glass windows and concrete. In 1982, military personnel at an intercontinental ballistic missile base witnessed several brilliantly lit orbs overhead. Seconds later, a warning light indicated a missile had switched to the prepare-to-launch mode. Alleged UFO come close to starting a nuclear attack? UFO sightings over Russia are not limited to the recent past. Reports of peculiar-looking airborne objects date back centuries. However, no formal investigations were undertaken until the early 20th century, when an event of epic proportions demanded analysis. Tunguska, July 30th, 1908. In a remote area of Siberia, the morning calm was rocked by an explosion. The powerful blast was heard a thousand miles away. There was an enormous firewall blast of something on the order of 15 megatons of equivalent energy, which is roughly a thousand times that of the Hiroshima blast at the end of the Second World War. This was an extraordinary event. Because of the remoteness of the Tunguska region, it was almost 20 years before any government researchers visited the site. The first expedition to reach Tunguska was headed by Russian mineralogist Leonid Kulik. When the, the initial expedition got to the Tunguska area in, in 1927, the natives were reluctant to show the scientists into the region because they thought the god Agdi had devastated the area because of the wickedness that was going on, and he had destroyed the trees, killed the animals. Kulik eventually convinced locals to direct him to the blast location. Believing a meteorite had caused the massive explosion, Kulik assumed he would find a crater at the point of the meteorite's impact. To his surprise, there was none. He looked for meteorite samples on the ground because often when an, an object hits the earth, uh, it throws up debris and the debris is recoverable around the edges of the crater. But of course he didn't find that either. What Kulik discovered has stirred UFO debate for decades. At the blast's epicenter was a frozen swamp with an untouched clump of fully grown trees in the middle. Circled around the grove, 10 million dead trees lay in a symmetrical ring, seemingly mowed down by a cosmic scythe. 
So here we have a, an enormous blast site with no crater, no fragments or meteorites around the rim of the crater, and this radial pattern of burnt trees knocked down for some 20 miles in all directions. In the years that followed, others traveled to Tunguska to study the unusual occurrence. There might have been fruits obtained by labors of another expedition sent by the head of the Soviet secret police in the late 1940s. But all we know is that such expedition existed. We do not know what has happened to the items and information it collected. Further baffling ufologists were reports of radiation damage in the Tunguska blast region. There were also some reports of mutations taking place in plant life, and uh, even uh, some humans apparently uh, suffered some uh, gene damage. In 1947, Russian Army Colonel Alexander Kazentsev developed a remarkable theory based on information about the devastating consequences of America's atomic bomb attacks on Japan. He was listening to the report about the nuclear bombardment. The announcer gave a very long and very detailed description of how and in which direction trees, houses had fallen, and so on, how everything was hit. He realized that what had happened in Hiroshima, exactly the same happened at Tunguska, only nearly half a century ago. Kazentsev hypothesized that the nuclear-like devastation seen at Tunguska must have been caused by the crash of a nuclear-powered alien spacecraft. But the scientific community rebuffs the UFO theory. Scientists claim the Tunguska explosion was caused by a rare but explainable natural event. They believe an asteroid dropped to just three miles above the Earth's surface and then exploded. As the object came in, it was, it was being decelerated and squeezed by atmospheric forces. It blew up with a force of a, of a hydrogen bomb. The shockwave smashed down the forest, knocking trees away from the blast and resulting in a pattern away from ground zero. But how would an asteroid explosion explain the reports of radiation damage in the Tunguska area? Scientists say it can be attributed to the sheer magnitude of the explosion. As we mentioned before, the, the blast itself was a thousand times greater than the Hiroshima blast at the end of World War II. The blast would have generated a series of very high-speed charged particles that would have been the cause of some of the mutations in the gene structures of plants and animals. But to this day, scientific explanations do not satisfy many ufologists. I have been several times to the place where the Tunguska body fell. I intentionally call it body, not meteorite. I mean the catastrophe of an asteroid, of a comet, or of any other natural body cannot lead to such consequences. A number of expeditions found things that they couldn't explain. There are some people who were saying that the evidence suggested this was some kind of an alien spaceship. Uh, that was the kind of magical explanation you use when you don't have enough surreal science to understand the physics and the, uh, and the astronomy involved. Throughout the rest of the 20th century, magical explanations of unidentified flying objects over Russian skies would continue. And in one instance would help expose a top-secret Soviet military project. World War II was over, but the Cold War was just beginning. So 
Soviet leader Joseph Stalin had initiated the Berlin blockade and directed his scientists to develop a nuclear weapon to rival that of the United States. It was during this period that some claimed Stalin grew concerned about UFOs. It is said his interest stemmed from reports of a 1947 UFO incident in Roswell, New Mexico. New Mexico in 1947 would have been a hotbed of Soviet espionage because we had all kinds of stuff there. Uh, the, uh, the 509th bomber wing, the only atomic bomber wing group. Purportedly, Stalin ordered Sergei Korolev, the founder of the Russian space program, to analyze information about the supposed Roswell crash and report his findings. Mr. Korolev came up with an answer. Yes, UFOs exist. No, they present no immediate threat. And after evaluating the information, all that, uh, that the Russians had acquired on Roswell and on UFOs, Korolev concluded, UFOs are real. They appear to be intelligently controlled. That's what he told Stalin, and Stalin in turn said, that's what my other people have concluded as well. While concrete proof of the conversation does not exist, several Soviet scientific agencies did begin investigating UFOs in the ensuing years. Stalin, after getting this information about Roswell and UFOs in general, did the same thing basically that the American government had been doing. He condemns UFOs in public and then conducts secret tests behind the scenes. He had all sorts of high-level scientists who would research the problem for him and then report to military officials all behind the scenes. Also hidden from public view were UFO reports culled from Soviet Air Force pilots. Between the mid-1950s and mid-1960s, pilots reported approximately 15,000 UFO sightings. It is very difficult to find a pilot who has been flying for many years and has never seen a UFO. Most of these sightings can be easily explained. In an era of superpower distrust, flights of American spy planes and spy balloons were common over Soviet skies. But investigative journalist George Knapp, who has viewed portions of the Soviet UFO files, found some of the pilot sightings perplexing. There were 40 instances where Russian warplanes were sent after UFOs. This is not temperature inversion. This is not a weather balloon. This is not swamp gas. These are craft floating around in the airspace of Russia. And they sent warplanes to go chase them. While pilots continued to report strange objects in the sky, none could offer tangible evidence to support their claims. But in 1968, over the skies of Riga, Latvia, an alleged UFO sighting was caught on film. As a Soviet propaganda film crew documented a test flight of a fighter interceptor jet, the pilot noticed an unusual object high in the sky. And suddenly the pilot shouted, look, film it. We looked and saw a triangle at a tremendous height. Fighter planes scrambled to investigate, but the object quickly disappeared behind a cloud and was never seen again. It was later estimated that the craft was hovering approximately seven miles above the ground. The film was sent to the Kremlin, where it remained locked from public view for years. They really took it seriously. I say seriously because the film was taken away. It was declared completely secret. Outsiders have only recently seen the confiscated film. While some maintain the film is conclusive evidence of a UFO, skeptics argue the vehicle was most likely a French-made high-altitude research balloon.
as secrecy enveloped all government discussions of UFO issues, an underground army of Soviet ufologists began to form in the USSR. They kept their studies concealed. Russians who study UFOs in this period report that they had a very serious feeling of threat from the Soviet government, that they were doing something which the Soviet government disapproved of. The leader of civilian UFO research was Felix Ziegel, the man considered the father of Soviet ufology. Felix Ziegel was a Soviet scientist. He was a doctor of mathematics and astronomy at the Moscow Aviation Institute. He made it his job to find out why are the strange objects or in disguise of his country. Ziegel challenged the Soviet system by conducting paranormal lectures, organizing independent UFO investigations, and urging Soviet citizens to report any and all sightings. His efforts were not without risk. We cannot say, of course, that people would be put in jail for it, but still Siegel suffered. He was harassed both in his place of work at the Institute of Aviation and he was harassed by the state government authorities. Siegel and his investigators spread information about UFO sightings through an underground press network. Samizdat, private publications used to disseminate information, were strictly forbidden by the Kremlin. In his time, brochures were printed in a Samizdat way. They were collections of observations and letters, typed in five to ten copies. All materials were typed with the use of carbon paper. Samizdat papers were distributed by trustworthy messengers who secretly carried the copies from one person to the next. UFO information circulated in this covert manner until 1967, when suddenly it seemed as if ufologists were given a reprieve from government censure. Today, it appears this respite was a smokescreen, part of an intricate government deception. The complex ruse began in 1967, when citizens reported multiple sightings of crescent-shaped UFOs over the skies of the Ukraine and the lower Volga Valley. It was also seen as far south as the Caucasus Mountains, where many astronomers in observatories in the Caucasus Mountains would see these objects flying horizontally from west to east, crescent-shaped, uh, heading, heading toward the east. For reasons unknown at the time, the government allowed press coverage and independent study of the sightings. Felix Siegel was granted permission to form a government-sanctioned investigative committee made up of over 200 scientific and military experts. In October 1967, they convened at the Central House of Aviation and Cosmonautics in Moscow. Their goal? Determine the cause of the mass sightings. On television and in newspapers, Siegel's committee appealed to Soviet citizens to report information on UFOs. For the first time in Soviet history, UFOs seemed to be an open topic. Not last long. 
Within a few months of Siegel's televised appeal, the steel jaws of Soviet censorship clamped down. Reporting of UFOs was once again off limits. The subject was dropped from the controlled media, and Siegel's committee was ordered to disband. The committee was to encourage people to report. As soon as the reports began to, to gather, somebody in Moscow quashed the activity, canceled the committee, canceled publication of, of further works, and put a lid on it. Cries of a Kremlin whitewash were immediately sounded. Why the cover-up takes place, I don't know. Is there a cover-up? There's no question about it. But what they were covering up is the question. UFO buffs believe they were covering up alien visitations. I think the evidence is clear they were covering up discussions, descriptions of their own secret military aircraft and missile activities and satellite activities. Scientist and NASA consultant James Oberg came to this conclusion in 1977 after studying Soviet space vehicle launch patterns and comparing them to the dates of the 1967 sightings. deduced that the crescent-shaped objects witnessed in the sky were not alien in nature, but could be attributed to secret tests of a new Soviet missile warhead. People in the area saw the rockets, especially at night, saw the streamers, the contrails in the sky, even heard the rockets. They were told by the government that there was nothing there, that it was not anything ours. It became a UFO phenomenon. Later dubbed by the Pentagon as a fractional orbital bombardment system, the Soviets had good reason to keep the tests secret. It was designed to sneak under our radar as a first strike weapon. It was one of these scary things that you only build it if you mean to make a sneak attack. It was also illegal to have such a weapon because in 1967, the U.S. and Russia and other countries signed a treaty forbidding the placing of nuclear weapons into orbit. But why, after crushing public dissemination of UFO information for years, did the government briefly loosen its restrictions in 1967? It appears now to have been a deliberate ploy to fool its citizens and the international community about the true nature of the sightings. The Soviet government did not want the public to understand what was going on. They didn't want the Americans to know, for example, what was going on. It was a useful camouflage. It diverted people's attention. Because it was a UFO, Western journalists would laugh rather than investigate it. The cover-up by the Soviet government is in letting people think they're flying saucers. The strategy backfired when the extensive UFO data collected by Felix Siegel's committee was published in magazines. The Soviet government realized what these reports really were. They're military secrets. Not described accurately, but accurately enough to be of use to the CIA if they ever caught on. The government said, oh my gosh, and other things in Russian, and said no more UFO reports get published in the Soviet Union. For 10 years, public discussion of UFOs was effectively brought to a halt. But that would change in 1977 with the appearance of a strange-looking object over Soviet skies, witnessed by thousands of astonished citizens. September 20th, 1977. As dawn approached in the small Russian port city of Petrozavosk, a spectacular aerial display lit up the skies. The incident would become one of the most studied UFO sightings in Soviet history. 
The phenomenon of Petrozavodsk is one of the greatest abnormal phenomena on the territory of our country. At approximately 4 o'clock in the morning, civilians and military personnel reported seeing huge star-like apparitions shooting in the sky. As it flew up in the sky, it appeared to come over the city and then head off, head off toward the horizon. People who were out in the streets of the town saw this blazing jellyfish streaming tentacles down from the saucer-shaped bright core. The impressive display lasted approximately 10 minutes. Witnesses claimed that a host of strange occurrences on the ground accompanied the sighting. They reported all sorts of phenomena. They smelled ozone. Uh, computers were crashing. Drivers lost the control of their vehicles and went into dishes. Perhaps the phenomenon most difficult to explain was the appearance of finely glazed holes in glass windows and rocks around the city. There is no explanation for this fact, but the connection is direct by the time parameters. There had been no holes before the event, and then they appeared. Witnessed by thousands, the aerial display above Petrozavosk was impossible to refute. While the sighting remained a mystery to Soviet citizens, NASA consultant James Oberg quickly discovered its origins. Because of my connection with the space program and my knowledge of satellites and rockets, I was able to find out within a matter of hours there was a rocket launching that morning from a secret space center north of Moscow at precisely the time people were seeing this UFO. The jellyfish-like display was triggered by the launch of the Cosmos 955 spy satellite. As the rocket engine contrails were backlit by the rising morning sun, it produced the tentacle effect observed by witnesses. So this, this, what they call basically the smoking gun of Soviet ufology, they call it a medusa or jellyfish UFO because it was streamers of light coming down from the streamers in the rocket engines of the, ro the rocket, as it turned out. As with previous mass sightings, the government had ample reason to keep the truth hidden from Soviet citizens. The satellite was launched from a secret military space center called Plisetsk, one of several undisclosed missile bases scattered throughout the Soviet Union. Most ufologists accept the satellite launch as the cause of the aerial display. But many argue it does not fully clarify the mystery. How shall we explain the appearance of some beams that burnt the glass? When the pieces of the glass were analyzed at the Institute of Meteorology in Moscow, they concluded that these holes resulted from badly glazed window glass. That is, a purely technical defect took place. I do not believe that the launch of a secret military satellite would explain the holes that were made in the glass. In my personal opinion, no, this was not man-made technology that's responsible for such effects. There were some reports of holes being drilled into glass window panes and in paving stones. I saw those reports. I can't explain it. All these sorts of additional phenomena, these additional reports, are typical of what happens when people see a very sudden shocking sight in the sky and look around them for corroborative evidence. Most of the time, it's irrelevant, independent, and sometimes even imaginary. While the mysterious holes might never be fully explained, the Petrozavosk incident had much deeper consequences inside the walls of the Kremlin. The upshot of this incident was the decision of the Soviet government to create a secret program 
to study your force. In the weeks following the Petrozovsk sighting, the Soviet Academy of Sciences received inquiries from several European nations concerned about the nature of the event. In response, the Academy of Sciences requested permission from the Kremlin to initiate a top-secret investigation of anomalous occurrences. Although aware the majority of these events were not paranormal in nature, the scientists admitted in their request that they could not provide a scientific basis for all UFO sightings. The Academy of Sciences can neither ignore or explain the paranormal phenomena similar to that observed in September 1977 in Petrozavosk. The program was organized to show that we did not know the answers to these questions and would be studying it on the scientific level. That was the way the official scientific program for studying abnormal phenomena and extraterrestrial flying objects started its work in the Soviet Union. In 1978, the investigation that later became known as Institute 22 was formally started. The study lasted 13 years and was completely concealed from public view. But why did the Soviet government spend time and money to investigate a phenomenon it already knew the origins of? There's really no surprise that the Soviet military, even if they understood the nature of most of these reports, would still investigate them. The Soviets traditionally spied on themselves as severely as they spied on the West. If they already knew that these were missile tests, why do they have to have a nationwide study behind the scenes? I mean, it's not like the results of the study were ever going to be uh, published anywhere. It was a secret. So it makes no sense. While the rationale for the beginnings of the study is still debated, there is no doubt the scope of the investigation was far-reaching. The Institute 22 inquiry was conducted jointly between the Soviet Academy of Sciences and the Ministry of Defense. It was very useful for the Academy of Sciences to collaborate and to carry out studies together with the Ministry of Defense because naturally it was much easier for the Ministry of Defense to get the information we had no access to. The armed forces were ordered to study what, if any, influence possible UFOs might have on the proper functioning of technical military equipment. In addition, hundreds of thousands of sailors, soldiers, and pilots were recruited to watch for and report on UFOs. No one was told why the reports were being taken. The Ministry of Defense has an enormous observance potential. First, military units are located all over the country. Second, unlike civil organizations, an order from the Minister of Defense is sufficient for making a potential viewer of each military man. And this was done. Every single unit in the vast Soviet military empire had to comply with the study. That is, any UFO, any anomalous object, any ball of light, any strange thing in the sky whatsoever had to be fully investigated. Scientists were directed to investigate the physical nature of alleged paranormal phenomena. The data collected by the military and scientists was analyzed in a lab located in a nondescript building in a suburb of Moscow. The personnel of the laboratory were not numerous, not more than 10 people, and this number was never exceeded. But the specialists from almost all the scientific areas worked there, from a physician to specialists in radioelectronics, meteorology, and astrogeophysics. Practically all the specialists were represented there. It was done in order to study all possible aspects of UFOs. 
of the study, Institute 22 would be called on to scrutinize an incident of global consequence. When a suspected UFO incident placed the world on the brink of nuclear war. I was riding a motorcycle not far from here. I saw a large object in the air. It had a perfect geometric shape. At the same moment inside the silo, an emergency warning light indicated that a nuclear missile had switched to launch mode. The most telling testimony comes from the communications officer who said that somehow something entered the correct code. But Moscow had not ordered a launch, nor had any personnel in the bunker touched the control panel. For 15 agonizing seconds, technicians frantically scrambled to stop the launch. Then, without explanation, the launch sequence was aborted. They were ready for launch. The UFO, poof, goes away. Poof, the uh, command control module goes back to normal. Had a UFO somehow interfered with the launch controls of a nuclear missile? A team of investigators from Institute 22, the secret state-sponsored UFO research team, was immediately ordered to the missile base. They established within a very short period, literally half a day, that a military training exercise took place at a nearby aerial ground. Investigators learned that the sighting occurred at the same time and in the same area where the military was testing flares. Dropped out of planes, the flares provided five to seven minutes of illumination. That explained the strange display in the sky. But why did the nuclear launch sequence activate? The fact that the emergency situation coincided with the effects which took place is certainly a remarkable coincidence, but it is still a coincidence. The ICBM control equipment was systematically taken apart and rebuilt, but no defects were found. It's not just an electrical malfunction. Something entered the correct launch codes. That just doesn't happen every day. We hear from our government UFOs are not a matter of national security. The Russian government has been telling its people the same thing. They're trying to confuse us. This incident is clear evidence, if ever there was, that UFOs do carry national security implications. After examining the ICBM episode, the investigative team of Institute 22 continued to scrutinize various sightings around the country. 
some who reported UFOs had a much closer view than those on Earth. Cosmonauts. The first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, is quoted in the Thread 3 documents as saying, I can tell you that UFOs are real, and if you allow me, I'll tell you a lot more. The second man in space, cosmonaut Tidoff, said that there were seven UFOs dancing around his space capsule during his brief flight into space. However, even to this day, most cosmonauts are reluctant to speak about any unusual phenomenon they witnessed in space. There's a ridicule factor, there's a laughter curtain, there are career consequences from reporting a UFO and taking it seriously. But in this rare interview obtained by the History Channel, two cosmonauts spoke of unusual objects they encountered in space. Many cosmonauts have seen phenomena which are far beyond the experiences of Earthmen. For ten years, I never spoke of such things. Former Commander Vladimir Kovalyonik of the Salyut 6 space station revealed that on May 5, 1981, he observed an unrecognizable illuminated entity outside the porthole of his craft. The object had an elliptical shape and flew with us. It only flew straight, but then a kind of explosion happened. It produced a golden light, very beautiful to watch. A second explosion followed, and two spheres appeared. As we entered the darkness of Earth's shadow, I could no longer see them. On a Mir mission in 1991, cosmonaut Musa Manarov managed to videotape an anomalous object during a routine docking procedure. I was looking out the biggest window. It was directly in front of me. I am familiar with the construction of all spaceships, but this was different. There is ongoing debate about sightings of unidentified objects by cosmonauts and American astronauts alike. Skeptics insist there is enough debris left in orbit to constitute a plethora of unusual sightings. Cosmonauts traveled amidst the stars. The 1990s saw major changes take place on Soviet soil. When the walls of communism crumbled, American UFO investigator George Knapp ventured to Russia, hoping to discover just what secrets the Soviets had been hiding about alien encounters. What he found was startling. Beginning in the mid-1980s, the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union conducted several summits aimed at reducing both nuclear arms and tensions between the two superpowers. Shortly after one such meeting, President Ronald Reagan revealed he and Mikhail Gorbachev had discussed the topic of alien encounters. I couldn't help but say to him, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held. If suddenly there was a threat to this world, from some other species from another planet uh, outside in the universe. We'd forget all the little local differences that we have between our countries. Reagan made five different public statements, including one to the United Nations, that, well, boy, wouldn't it be something if UFOs were suddenly a threat to us and we'd all get together? And so Gorbachev kind of responded, yeah, it sure would. You know, we would get together. Lo and behold, we did get together. You know, the wall came tumbling down, perestroika, glasnost. 
With the collapse of the Soviet Union came a new era of openness in Russia. Thousands of miles away in Las Vegas, Nevada, investigative journalist George Knapp, who had studied many American UFO incidents, realized the time was perfect to explore Russian reports. Three years ago, we had succeeded in obtaining several hundred pages of secret Russian UFO documents and photos. Other Western journalists followed. Today, it's a new ballgame. The lid has been dropped on government UFO files, although there is still plenty of information to be found. It occurred to me, now may be the time to go ahead and try to find out what the Russians know about UFOs. It was a tumultuous, crazy time, but a wonderful time to be there as a journalist. In 1993, Knapp traveled to Russia and was introduced to Boris Sokolov, the coordinator of Institute 22. Like many government-funded scientific projects from the era, Institute 22's funding had been cut and the project disbanded. Sokolov provided Knapp with some of the recently declassified UFO files, containing information on the cases that were more difficult to explain. He had culled from the thousands of reports some of the most interesting ones and had kept them in these binders and, and we were able to, uh, to get them and bring them back. Why would the Russian military study all of this stuff? Colonel Sokolov said it was a very practical reason. They knew that UFOs could do things that their planes couldn't. Figured by studying it, they may be able to get an advantage over us in terms of stealth technology. Upon returning to the United States, Knapp made some of the files public. As a result, Colonel Sokolov was ridiculed by some back in his homeland. Officially, Russia was a democracy, but the communists still had a lot of influence. There were communist newspapers that attacked him broadly as, uh, selling, as being a sellout to Mother Russia. But the public scorn Sokolov endured was certainly less severe than the consequences he might have been subject to in the old Soviet Union. My friend put it this way. He said, if this had happened five years ago, we would be in prison. If it had happened ten years ago, we'd all be shot for, for giving up these secrets. But in 2000, the relaxed political climate allowed Sokolov and scientist Yuli Platov to publish a report summarizing the findings of Institute 22. Entitled The History of UFO State Research in the USSR, the report concluded that of the 3,000 UFO sightings investigated, 90 to 95 percent of the incidents could be attributed to man-made phenomena, mostly missile launches and research balloons. to 10% could not be easily explained. He was not willing to conclude that any of these things were extraterrestrials or interdimensionals or aliens from the future or anything of that sort. The thing is that before, the enthusiastic ufologists had affirmed in literature that all we saw was due to contacts with the extraterrestrial civilizations. No, no, no. It turned out that only a very small percentage of events remained unexplained. But in a land that for so long concealed information and suppressed dialogue, many ufologists wondered if the report revealed the entire truth. There is a vast treasure trove of KGB documents on this, on this topic somewhere that no one has ever seen. And I know the KGB did release some documents in the early 90s, but it is presumed by a lot of folks that the best stuff is still hidden in a vault somewhere. What happened to the files? Who keeps them? Until we ourselves go to the files, we cannot say whether what Mr. Platov and Mr. Sokolov say is true. It will probably never be known exactly how many Soviet UFO files remain classified or what they contain.
Most in the scientific community doubt any smoking guns exist in the unseen files. People in Russia still have a very powerful sense of gossip and rumors because in under Soviet days, so many things were illegal to talk about, illegal to know. So they replaced the reality with a very rich mythology. UFOs became part of that mythology in Russia, and it's still a very powerful theme over there. But many UFO enthusiasts remain suspicious, believing that the proof of alien encounters exists and is still being hidden. that there have been very 
various attempts, including more recent ones, to put a spin on this to say, ah, oh, there's nothing to it. That's a bunch of baloney. The results of the Soviets' most far-reaching secret UFO study became public in the year 2000. The inquiry started in 1978 and took 13 years to complete. The investigative team consisted of top scientists and military experts and was completely clandestine. No, is this no, that, uh, Certainly, this collaboration between the Academy of Sciences and the Ministry of Defense was not paraded. I mean, formally, these studies were closed. Classified organizations took part in these studies. This research should have a secret character. Colonel Boris Sokolov was the coordinator of the investigation. Shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, he met with American investigative journalist George Knapp. Sokolov told us that just as in America, 90 to 95 percent of these cases could be explained away, but the remaining 5 to 10 percent could not be easily explained. The 13-year Soviet UFO study scrutinized some of the most puzzling sightings in Russian history. In 1968, a cameraman documenting a test of a Soviet jet fighter noticed a huge triangular object in the sky. He focused his camera on the object and caught it on film. an unusual aerial display sent tentacles of light streaming down over the town of Petrozavosk. Some claim the event caused fine holes to be glazed in glass windows and concrete. In 1982, military personnel at an intercontinental ballistic missile base witnessed several brilliantly lit orbs overhead. Seconds later, a warning light indicated a missile had switched to the prepare-to-launch mode. UFO come close to starting a nuclear attack? UFO sightings over Russia are not limited to the recent past. Reports of peculiar-looking airborne objects date back centuries. However, no formal investigations were undertaken until the early 20th century, when an event of epic proportions demanded analysis. Tunguska, July 30, 1908. In a remote area of Siberia, the morning calm was rocked by an explosion. The powerful blast was heard a thousand miles away. There was an enormous fireball blast of something on the order of 15 megatons of equivalent energy, which is roughly a thousand times that of the Hiroshima blast at the end of the Second World War. This was an extraordinary event. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.